ops, and a little bit of paranoia. Welcome to the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and I'm joined by two of our usual co-hosts, Mark and Jason. Jason, oh, now he's got his video on. Thanks for waving. And we have a very, very special guest tonight, Mr. Chris Wright of Red Hat fame. If you, if you don't know who Chris Wright is, I'll let him tell you himself. I get the honors? Yeah, sure. <laughs> How <right>. many honors? <laughs> uh, so I'm Chris Wright, and I'm uh, CTO for Red Hat. And I think a lot of people wonder what that means. Uh, so in, in the CTO world, there's different ways you can slice and dice that, that role. Um, what I do is technology strategy, pr- pretty simply. Uh, and it means I get to spend a lot of time thinking about technology, the impacts of major trends across the industry for our business at Red Hat. And uh, uh, certainly based on the work that we do at Red Hat, that means a lot of time also spent looking at community open source software development uh, communities and, and things that are happening in the innovation space of all the cool projects that come out of uh, open source communities. So a lot of cool things. Pretty cool. That sounds like a great job to have, I got to say. Um, and it really does make me and maybe some of the viewers curious, how does one become CTO of Red Hat? How did you get there? How did you, how did you manage to work your way to that position? Uh, I can tell you with total honesty that it was um, a series of events that I didn't start out with the plan. So there wasn't, you know, way back when, when I set my aspirations to a very specific goal of becoming CTO for Red Hat. Nine-year-old um, Chris, that wasn't what you told Grammy <laughs> you wanted to do when you grew up. It's Man, not, I want to be CTO. No, in fact, um, it really, I mean, I, I've been in the computer industry for, uh, I guess, a quarter century, and uh, which sounds like a long time when I say it that way. It's been a while. Uh, <laughs> and I'm an engineer. I, I love software. And one of the things that I discovered over time was first open source and, and what an amazing experience to be part of an open source community. Uh, and, and it really drove a lot of passion for me and a great way to kind of just learn a tremendous amount. And then the other piece was just over time, I found myself working on projects and engaging with broader and broader parts of, uh, I'll call it the business meaning different parts of the of the organizations that I've worked in, not, not always at Red Hat. I've been at Red Hat about 15 years. Um, and the so, so I think it's a combination of just a series of technology skills and experiences that I've has, had as, a, as an engineer and a technologist, combined with learning more and more about the business side and kind of being able to communicate the uh, technical challenges to a business world and the business challenges to a technical world in, in ways that you're sort of bridging a gap. And, um, you know, I think one thing leads to another and suddenly I I'm in a, was in a role that um, I really truly enjoy and I, I feel really privileged to have such a, a, a role at a, at a great company like Red Hat. And again, it just, it's a, it's a, a series of, of events that you don't predict as you as you start out. In retrospect, you can draw the line backwards and it makes sense, but looking forward, it's it's hard to predict. 
Yeah, I, I can completely accept that. <laughs> I mean, I've I, I think there's probably so many career stories that have gone that way, even if you're not CTO of Red Hat, where it's just like, if you'd have asked me five years ago if I'd be working at Red Hat today, I don't know that I would have been able to answer. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I would have said, yeah, totally, that's my plan. Uh, but here I am. So, and uh, yeah, I, I actually like that. I mean, nothing wrong with having specific goals, certainly, but that there's an organic nature to life and you sort of meander and you find your path. And I know for me personally, um, each of those steps was related to where I was coming from the context that I was in. It tended to be an expansion of responsibilities, which was mostly about broader influence. And I was really, and I, I've been really drawn to, I have only two hands and there's only so much I can do. So it's, you know, the, the broader the influence, the, the more you can feel like you're creating impact. And uh, so I looked for ways to, to expand my knowledge. I've always been, been curious about the new things and uh, ways that I can expand some, like the impact of, of the, the way I spend my time. So I think maybe those two things kind of summarize that, those yeah, meandering right. steps. Right, right. So you mentioned uh, that you were an engineer and you mentioned open source projects. I am... Um, curious and it's of course one of the things that we wanted to touch on what what projects have you committed to like what if what have you participated in uh either that led you here or just in general you know like what are the things that you like working on what are the the projects that you've you've chosen to work with yeah well i can kind of go through my personal history and and it's it's interesting because there's some there's some repetition that maps to the repetition of the technology industry where we sort of keep reinventing the same things over and over again, um, but better and more exciting each time. Uh, We're so I, excited. I started in, um, I was actually working for a telecommunications company and I was responsible for the availability of the system that we were building, which was a largely proprietary system, but we used quite a bit of, of uh, the open source tool chain. So, uh, at the time, we targeted a bunch of proprietary Unix platforms, uh, but we used the GCC toolchain. And of course, the first thing you'd do is go to SunSite and get the real tools that you'd want for your shell and um, you know better versions of grep and awk and like things that today don't sound very interesting, but at the time was was like a really, really empowering as an engineer. Um, and it, through that process of being responsible for the availability of the system, I stumbled across a project called Linux HA, which is high availability project. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I started contributing to that project first, just by tuning into the mailing list, uh, grabbing software, trying, trying to make it work in my environment, tuning into the mailing list and mostly just listening. And then I realized that I had a, a, a specific idea in mind and I wrote a patch to introduce multicast into the system so that I could change the way heartbeats were managed across this HA platform. And the community accepted it. I just, the, the experience of building something that I was interested in, finding that other people were thankful, where, where I really felt like I was talking to some of the some of the brightest people on the planet that understood the challenges of HA systems, which... I aspired to be one of those people. I didn't mm -hmm. feel like I was one of those people. So yeah. just being able to, to connect and rub shoulders with those bright minds and then have my work accepted, I tell you right there, I was hooked. Um, mm -hmm. And 
the so then, then there's some interesting kind of steps that come after that where working in HA, uh, HA has these notions of availability. Uh, availability has things like, well, often there's a proxy or a load balancer that does distribution across a set of uh, members of a cluster. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some security isolation that could be interesting to ensure availability of a, of a system. So I started working in some slightly different adjacent areas. And I, I got a job at a company that allowed me to spend all of my time working inside the Linux kernel. Uh, and I focused initially on HA and then subsequently on security. And the interesting thing about the HA project, which it started with uh, something that's still around, which is IPVS, uh, virtual server project, but also there's something called Linux vServers. And what's interesting about Linux vServers is if you fast forward to today, where we talk a lot about containers, there's some heavy overlaps in the functionality that was in the vServer project to what's in in uh, today's modern container uh, runtime environment, which is you know mostly rooted down in the Linux kernel. Uh, and I was doing it for different reasons, which is more about security isolation, which led me to a security project, which I helped create, which is the Linux security module infrastructure in the Linux kernel, which led to the creation of what's now known as AppArmor, which is a project that I directly worked on, uh, and a uh, another project called SE Linux. So I spent quite a bit of time in the in the Linux kernel. I became the stable kernel maintainer along with Greg Crowhartman. And then I found that in my security world, isolation could be improved if you leverage these new hardware extensions called VTX, or in the early days, Longhorn uh, or LT extensions. And um, VTX is today what you would think of as virtualization. And cool. the, the reason I got into virtualization was because security and this this HAV server world, uh, which you know, it's just sort of funny that virtualization led me into cloud. Cloud led me to OpenStack, uh, led me to some of the networking capabilities that are required. And in the beginning, I was working on HA for a telecommunications company. Uh, fast forward to say 2012, and I was working in the context of virtualization, cloud networking, to produce something brand new. For the telecommunications industry, right, uh, which was you know just a funny. All these things have these kind of embedded circles and and full circles. Um, so you know I, along the way, I've I've touched a bunch of different projects. And today, I was on a call with somebody who said, uh, "I was, uh, I've used Fedora since you me became the maintainer of the ASCII doc <laughs> uh, RPM." Uh, so I brought ASCII doc into Fedora and at, and at the same time, and the reason I brought it into Fedora was because I was the maintainer of the Git RPM for Fedora because I was an early contributor to Git because I was a kernel developer working with Linux right. on making Git work, which at the time was this very arcane system that had some obscure C-based binaries that you had to use. You had to manually manage the internal index of, of the the a source code repository. And, and then people started writing these weird shell scripts around it to make it a little easier to use. And I, you know, I was in involved back in those early days. So I've, you know, touched various bits and pieces of projects. I spent the bulk of my time in the Linux kernel community. Uh, and often in availability, distributed systems, clustering, security type of, and, and networking type of spaces. So cool. 
That's quite the quite the journey. Linux HA eventually became Red Hat Cluster Suite, didn't it? Or was it a piece there's of it? Been, there's yeah, so it's exactly there, there's um, there's an interesting long history in the HA world. Uh, in the early early days, Red Hat had this project called Piranha. Mm-hmm. The end of Piranha's HA Piranha, uh, and the uh, Linux HA project had this core piece called Heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the evolution of Heartbeat turned into pieces of Red Hat Cluster Suite, and that you know the, the the world today has evolved, and I'm not as closely involved in it, so I'm not even sure. Right. Yeah, I think with RHEL six, uh, we pivoted to Pacemaker. Pacemaker. Yeah. 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 So in the RHEL five days, I was I was hel- I was working with, in higher ha! ed, and um, <laughs> one of the things I was tasked with was building a highly available virtualization cluster on Zen. Right. So a lot of the pieces that you're talking about, I'm like, I remember those. I had to deal with those. I don't really miss those days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There was that was the days when your clusters were like, it felt like if you poked them the wrong way, all of your infrastructure was going to go down. (laughs) But if your infrastructure went down on its own, it would pick itself back up again. So it was this balancing act of of uh, complexity versus uh, highly high availability. So. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just remember the 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 run books of crazy scripts you have to run every time something went wrong. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, All those things still exist. Just yeah, right, sli- right. Slightly different form factors. Now yeah. a lot of that is masked behind Red Hat virtualization, and we don't have to look at it anymore. But it's right. all still there. <laughs> well, we we were looking at the HA stuff at Merck back when I was a Linux engineer there, and this would have been the RHEL four into RHEL five days. Okay. So, so the question for you, Mr. Wright, did the web-based cluster controls for RHEL 4 and RHEL 5 ever actually do anything? Because I don't <laughs> think that ever really worked. It claimed to be a, a friendly web GUI to manage your clusters, and uh, half the controls, like, you felt you were typing into the void. If you, if you went to the command line with RHEL 5, <laughs> you, could, you could make HA sort of work. Right. Not we just might have been bad Linux people at the time too. That's what I it was. You're, good you're Linux, definitely bad Linux people. Good Linux yeah, people no in that era didn't use the GUI mark. <laughs> well, except well, we had our we had this mandate though that our uh, our our Charlotte Control Center, the C2C, uh, that's where our production data center was. They wanted all these single panes of glass, and they wanted as much web based as they could. So if a vendor claimed to have a web a, a web UI, that's you know it better it better work. It. <laughs> yeah. So I can't answer that. Uh, and the reason is RHEL 4 predates my uh, my time at Red Hat. Yeah. I, okay. It, uh, I, I started at the beginning of introduction of, of RHEL 5. And I came in actually to Red Hat to as one of the kernel engineers that had done a lot of the infrastructure work in the Zen project. So I came to Red Hat as part of the lead of the Zen uh, team uh, to help turn Red Hat into a virtualization company. Mm-hmm. So by then I was not focused on HA. Uh, but what's interesting about that time frame was leading up to that, you had these projects that did things called uh, SSI, single system image. So it's like take a big cluster, make it look like one computer. And there was a specific project in the Zen space or company in the Zen space that was taking a collection of computers and using Zen the hypervisor to turn those collect that collection of computers into something that looked like one large computer, mm-hmm. which was sort of interesting to me because at the time the world was starting to say that the better way to do this is 
scale out and have a large collection of smaller computers and let them run independently and just acknowledge that you're running this complicated clustering system. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's only a matter of time that we come back around to this single system image idea, I'm sure. Uh, and today the cloud is the, the, the bulk expression of scale out highly distributed system. Uh, and, and it's all about manageability and management tools that make it seem like you can, you can think of it as one system, but you're, you know, the, the internals are lots of independent, uh, VMs and ultimately servers. Yeah. All of your applications. Yeah. You, I mean, you're, you're reminding me of all these transitions I had to go through where it was, we had highly available Zen and then Red Hat pivoted to KVM and we're like, okay, well, Red Hat's going that way. We can't stick with Zen. We're going to have to go to KVM. Uh, but KVM is so much better. It is. Oh. It is. I'm, I'm not complaining necessarily, um, but the first cluster I had to build, so the Zen cluster was built by my predecessor, and then I had to build the KVM cluster, which is essentially a clone of the Zen cluster with KVM underneath instead of Zen. Mm -hmm. And then Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization hits the scene, and Red Hat's talking all about Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization, and I'm like, we really should be moving to this. <laughs> So we picked up Rev with 3.0, and that was a mistake. Um, I hate to say that on the air, but I mean, there's there's a lot of people that would probably agree with me. Yeah, right. Exactly. There's there's a reason why when I was in that panel at Summit, I said .0 releases are a thing <laughs> that you test think, with and not put in production. But <laughs> I think anyone who's ever worn a pager or been yeah. on, on call in any way, shape, or form gets that. Yeah, yeah. Don't but, don't uh, put the dot o in production. No, no, we yeah. did, we did. We shouldn't have, but we did. But uh, but yeah, three dot and then you know we were on Rev ever since uh, from there until I left the college. So, but uh, so luckily that had a much longer lifespan than Zen or KVM did. <laughs> so, I'm going to toss you in the wayback machine, Chris. All right, here and, we go. Uh, no, I, I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask a, a brand new uh, accelerators candidate, right? How did you first get exposed to open source? And what would you say the coolest thing you've ever done, like a single instance with open source has been? Uh, I was first exposed to open source in that time frame when I was doing telecommunications work, right. uh, worked for a telecommunications company. And the thing, the, the, the first thing I was exposed to was the, the tool stack. Uh, so I was using... Uh, GCC, bin utils, all, like all the stuff that comes with the GCC tool chain. I didn't necessarily know that it was open source actually when I was first using it. It just was. It was there. We didn't use it just the software compiler. We yeah. used GCC, yeah. um, and it 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 required somebody to tell me, "Hey, actually, you should read this thing. It's called the GNU Manifesto, and it'll help you understand why GCC is so cool." Okay, that's that's interesting. And then, of course, SunSight had all the um, uh, often open source tools that were available. But again, I didn't fully appreciate what that was. Um, but the thing that really shifted it for me was um, in that environment, I had Spark stations. Uh, we had refrigerator-sized computers, uh, all of which ran variations of a of unix platforms and i absolutely loved it i love i loved unix i love working with all these different systems i learned a lot it was really fun it just had this one problem which was i couldn't afford a twenty thousand dollar machine to put in my basement and 
Why not? A friend of mine was working <laughs> at an ISP and said, you know, you can get this thing called Linux and you can run it on a PC. You just have to download these 50 floppies and, you know, pick the letters of the alphabet for the packages that you want. So you don't have to actually download all 50, but make sure you get the dependencies right. So you don't spend time building something that actually doesn't boot. Uh, so I pulled Slackware off uh, the internet through dial-up and loaded onto a PC. And suddenly I had this Unix environment that I was familiar with uh, on a PC. And then I realized that I actually had the source code uh, and I could look inside the operating system, which to that point I had never been able to look inside an operating system. And I was always curious what, <laughs> what was in there. Uh, and um, so that was, that's, that's how I got really ex exposed and started. Uh, and, and I'll never forget it at that time we had a product that came out that was based on FreeBSD, and one of the executives at the company saw the splash screen boot during the boot up process that says FreeBSD, and he just went ballistic like you can't put free in a product, so we had to go in and hack out free in the FreeBSD. But you could, because ironically, it was open and free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the the early tension of what does it even mean that it's freely available, and 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 you know, where's our value add? Uh, so as far as the coolest thing, I, 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 I mean, there's, there's different kinds of cool things. So I, I had just a basic router at home that was from my, um, my ISP, which I discovered I could, you know, build my own cable, connect to it and then upload firmware, uh, firmware images onto it that were Linux based and I could hack the router and make it do what I wanted. And that to me, was just fun and cool because it was this piece of hardware uh, that I suddenly had control over. I depended on for my daily life. And the reason I cared was it had a memory leak and over time it would suddenly freeze and I'd have to go reboot the, the thing. And I thought that was annoying. And I thought if I could put a, mo a more modern kernel, which actually had, it's sort of dated, but it would, it, there, the firewalling tools in Linux have gone through uh, various incantations. As and so in the early days, you had IP uh, masquerade, firewall admin tool, uh, and then IP chains and then IP tables. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to go from IP chains to IP tables, which brought in all these new features, which, you know, I started to be able to do more interesting things with the networking in that box just because. You could just because you could hack your own cable and download a firmware, firmware image to the system and, and take control. Um, but the things that was probably the most interesting work that I did, also the most frustrating, the hours of my life that I will never get back um, experience, was porting the Zen hypervisor and pair virtualized. Um, kernel to a 64-bit SMP machine. So at the time, x86 was was almost exclusively 32-bit. You had the early days of, of the first few AMD 64-bit chips. 32 bits is all anybody I'll ever need. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a lot of bits. Yeah. 256K of RAM is plenty too. Um, the, so I, I, it, it required deep, deep understanding of hardware that I hadn't had to, levels of the hardware that I hadn't had to get to before. Uh, and the, the arcanes of the boot up process, bootstrapping a processor, setting up things like 
interrupts and being able to communicate between, between processors to launch the next processor. And there was a bug that I was debugging and that bug that I was debugging happened exclusively in these um, handler routines that were entrance and exits from uh, interrupts. And they're all written in assembly. They're not that long, you know, maybe, maybe 30, 40 instructions per, per function. Yeah, but it's assembly. Um, but yeah. it's assembly. <laughs> and the I've written assembly, it's not easy. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely arcane. It's not easy. And it, you're in this weird environment where you barely have enough to display stuff on the screen. So I had to write this funky little display handler, um, create this little debug stub, and then spit out random garbage that was reflective of what's in a register and then single step through registers by changing the assembly code to put a loop after each subsequent instruction to figure out where I was getting stuck in this few lines of assembly in this early stage of the platform. And it, it I mean, it really was single stepping through instructions, but you didn't really have a debugger. So you just had to toss hex bits on the screen and hit, you'd know it hung when it paused because it hit the, uh, the, the, basically the forever loop that I would insert at the, at each next, next instruction as I got there, that process was so deeply tedious. Those are the hours I'll never get back. Yeah. Uh, but the end result was so satisfying because eventually we figured out what the problem was. And, uh, the, the, what came after that was now we suddenly had a 64 bit SMP hypervisor and per virtualized kernel that was brand new. And, you know, that, 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 that's a pretty, pretty spectacular feeling. And in the end, it was actually somebody else who found the, the real bug that was the showstopper from getting us that to the point where that completely booted. Uh, and uh, who, uh, so, you know, that's part of the, the community collaboration where mm-hmm. I was stuck in my basement, literally uh, hacking on code and single stepping through these <laughs> assembly routines. And um, I learned a tremendous amount and I felt you kind of feel like you're, really running the machine. Like I understood each, literally each instruction, I understood exactly what was happening. And that was just really satisfying. It's a really, really now, cool experience. Was that a paying gig at that point or you were doing just, that was open source contributing to it for the betterment of humankind? That was a paying gig. And so I I, I had Which an awesome good. job where uh, I was able to work for what's what's now known as the Linux Foundation, but the time it was called OSDL or open source development labs. And the thing that was so awesome about that job was my job was just make Linux better. Uh, so it was a paid job where we didn't have a commercial product or outlet as a nonprofit organization whose goal was just to just make Linux better. Make it better. Uh, That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so that was pretty, pretty <clears throat> spectacular uh, thing to be able to, to work hey. on. And Sweet. Yeah. So Josh from the chat has two questions for you. Sure. Do you remember what the router ran was it open wrt or ddwrt he's a bit of a hacker himself yeah um if you remember it it was neither open wrt or ddw or uh, ddwrt uh i'm not going to remember the name of the um is this the the firmware loader is adam seven um the project that I pulled from to create the image that I put into the Atom 7 firmware loader, uh, I don't remember anymore. Um, 
but I looked at OpenWRT and I don't remember anymore why it didn't fit. It was probably a hardware compatibility issue or it was ported to this mm. chip, not that chip. And I didn't want to spend the time doing, trying to take on that port. Uh, but it was an early action tech from probably, geez, might have even been the 90s. Um, long time ago. Yeah, long time ago. Distant Eight, galaxy, eight. far beyond the Milky Way. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He also wants, he, he has another two-parter and it kind of goes along with what we're talking about anyway, mm-hmm. but he, he'd like to know what has been your favorite part of being the CTO of Red Hat, editorializing from Uncle Mark, other than being on the Iron Sis admin. Yeah, right. <laughs> and what is a home project you're working on? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, the, my, my favorite part of being CTO for Red Hat is the the work we do at Red Hat is spanning across all these different open source communities. And we get to work in a lot of new technologies. And my job is sometimes I, I, I joke about it or sort of tease myself, say I, I'm buzzword compliant. Um, but my job is to live at, at the sort of edge of technology and where things are going. And that's just a very in, uh, for me, it's a very enjoyable space. I, I, I love technology. I like change. Um, and I love what we're building in open source communities to impact really the world, the, the, the way things are built, the way businesses run, the way technology is delivered. So I, that to me is probably the most satisfying or, or exciting, interesting thing about my role. Um, my, my home project is something that's going to take some time because I'm trying to keep, uh, get my kids to be a part of it. <laughs> and that is, I, I have a Jetson Nano back here on the shelf behind me. Uh, and I, my intention is to work with the kids to train to, you know, for, it's, it's a NVIDIA platform with a little GPU in it. Um, uh, to, to develop a system where we're training that, uh, uh, de- deploying a train model on that system that will recognize our dogs and use that to open the door. Uh, so we can let the dogs in and out of the house without having to have people involved. And I know that there's a lot of steps in the way of what we have to do, which include like physical, we, we have to get servos and uh, motors and move things. It's that's non-trivial. Um, and the part that's really going to make it slow is my kids aren't that excited about it. <laughs> Dang, that sounds so boring. Um, I can that's just look, the home look, project. I can, that's I'm I can to just let the kids. dog out. Why do I need a robot? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who let the dogs out? The robot. The robot. Who let the dogs out? The robot. The robot. I think that would be awesome. How old are your kids, Chris? They are 12 and 14. Mm. Uh, so they're... That can be a great age or that can be the age where they're like, they don't want to be seen with you depending on the mood they're yeah, in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it goes both ways. And they're, they're not that excited about technology um, as sort of a, a maker hacker. They're, they're, they're happy to consume it. You know, they sure. spend to play all day Fortnite and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Nate's not thing. as, not as excited about the hacking part of it, but yeah, you know, no. I'll try. Yeah. Cool though. I've I, I've got a almost ten year old who's she's just interested enough in technology, but she's not interested enough to really spend a lot of time learning it. So like little mm-hmm. things that I can sit down with her and do. Like I taught her to solder, for example, and she was just like amazed. I can solder now. This is cool. But 
I sat her yeah. down to build just a little Raspberry Pi system, and she lost interest as soon as I started writing the image to the SD card, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like, I, I got to pick my battles there. So a, yeah. a friend of mine gave me, uh, it. I can't remember the name, but it was some, it's basically, it looks like a watch, but it's some kind of jewelry. Uh, and you can s- stick a little USB cable uh, and, and then program it. And then it blinks lights in various ways. And when you put two near each other, they can blink based on how you programmed it. So you can sort of recognize each other. I've got two daughters. And that was actually really fun because (laughs) the crazy part of it, the part I'm not so sure I'd recommend is I'm pretty sure the SDK was, it was either C or C++. I can't remember which. In either case, it's there's a lot of obscure semantics that my youngest daughter at the time, uh, spelling was, you know, she's, she's young enough that spelling wasn't a strength. So just figuring out the words was, right. was tough, but they were able to, um, program that thing and make it flash and do, you know, colors and patterns. And it was, so it was instant gratification and it was something that they kind of enjoyed wearing at least for the hour or two that we played with it. And then eventually they got bored and yeah. Now it sits on a shelf somewhere, but that, you know, the, the starting point was actually fun and they didn't lose interest. They actually got sucked in mm-hmm. and I was like, ha ha ha. I've got hurt. you now. <laughs> we shall, we shall break open the debugger next because I have some kernel modules. I need you to look at. <laughs> right. yeah. Did I ever tell you at the time I was in my basement with that loop, lo- loop code? Oh, there it goes again. <laughs> oh, no. Dad's nerdy now. Yeah. Oh, uh, good Lord. All right, you, so, oh, you have something, Mark? Oh, I was going to move to the. I've, I'm hogging the interview. I should let somebody else say something. No, so I was. I was going to move on to the next question. To be honest, so which is uh, what I was going to do. Yeah. Go ahead. So whether it's your daily Red Hat machine or your home machine, whichever one you'd rather talk about, what do you use as like your daily? Just I want to sit down and use a computer. Like, what is it? What What's it running? What uh, is it? Some crazy rig or just like I just use an iPad, whatever. And, you know, VI or Emacs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> answer that one carefully, Chris. I don't use an iPad. I'll there is a right answer. <laughs> I will say that. Um, so I, I'll totally admit my, my workstation has gotten pretty boring. Um, so as CTO, I spend a lot of time traveling. Uh, so I cared about a, a mobile, a, a lightweight mm-hmm. laptop, so a mobile environment. And... I've worked remotely for significant part of my uh, time at Red Hat and working remotely. I typically had a laptop connected to a monitor so I could actually have, you know, multiple screens and code and get, get stuff done. Um, the more I traveled, the more the adjustment away from the monitor sucks so badly that I'd rather just always have the small screen. So I got to the point where I only use my laptop which for a number of years, a number of variations has been uh, a Lenovo uh, uh, X1 Carbon. So just kind of a vanilla lighter, lightweight laptop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I today, over the last, since March 12th, to be precise, uh, I've been working from home and you know, I, I, I live near an office here in the Boston area, but uh, we've all, all the Red Hatters have gone uh, out of the offices and gone back to working from home or gone to working from home. And so today I actually have my laptop connected to 
a monitor and now I'm surrounded by cameras and microphones and lights because I do a lot of web, you know, the, 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 the Zoom burnout or Zoom out that we were talking about before the show. Yeah. I do a lot of stuff on video conferencing and even uh, presentations that we're doing that are now virtual and remote. Uh, so I have this whole setup that's geared towards streaming content into OBS, doing my own post-production and then shipping that off to our creative teams to help um, do the fi final work. Uh, so my laptop is a, is a X1 Carbon that runs the current version of Fedora, which is Fedora 32. It's updated as of about two hours ago. And I tend to move to the next Fedora uh, about two weeks before it's gonna release GA. So it's very tail end of the beta stage. Um, and that's just because I like to have something that's new, but not so new that I'm gonna be in the process, you know, be a part of the team that's debugging it. Yeah. And you did I've been of that, running right? Fedora since, so I've been running Red Hat Linux and then Fedora since probably as far back as whatever that maybe 97 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, I picked up my first Red Hat distro like '98 or '99, so Red Hat Linux five, not yes. Enterprise Linux. We've, Red Hat Linux we've, five. We've, we've talked about five. that before, as you might tell. You might be able to tell. The box is around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, seven, seven point two was a big shift, and I yep. can't remember if glibc I think, uh, and uh, yeah, and then Red Hat switched to Red Hat uh, Advanced Server two dot one. Mm -hmm. uh, and introduced Fedora, yep. uh, and I was a I didn't work at Red Hat at the time, but I was a Red Hat Linux person, and then a Fedora person, and I've been using Fedora ever since. And I I really like it. It's it's yeah um, great environments. It's improved remarkably from those early days when uh, you know as as much as you may have had stability issues, it was just the whole world was complicated. Getting drivers that yeah. you know getting devices and hardware that was compatible with Linux wasn't easy back in those early days. Today, um, things remarkably work remarkably well. I mean, remember video, wind audio, modems? Stuff. Oh God! <laughs> Say that again. Do you remember wind modems? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's build a modem, but we're not going to have all the components in it. We're going to have the, 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 the operating system do the heavy lifting. But the modem and only... we're not going to tell people how it works. The so modem can't do it. Is that on Linux? The modem costs three cents to make, and we're going to sell it for twelve cents and make a ridiculous product. Or, or yeah. What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Profit. Margin, profit profit is the word I'm looking for. Um, yeah. You yeah. Ferengi, you? No, I uh, I worked in dial-up tech support when the wind modem showed up, and oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have so many levels of hatred for the wind modem. So I, I, ran I have to ISP. answer the the VI Emacs question. Oh right. Uh, because now I'll lose half the crowd no matter what I say. Uh, you use nano I, when don't I was you? in when I was in college. Um, I was working on my uh, on on a paper, and the paper I was writing it with uh, LaTeX, mm. and I was introduced. Uh, this was a BSD system. I was introduced first to VI and then to Emacs, and uh, I was introduced to VI. I had used it a little bit to write some some notes, and this uh, student came by and said, "You got to you got to use Emacs." Like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll check that out. So I started Emacs and I 
I had no, there was nobody there. I had no idea what to do next. I couldn't figure out how to get any help or, or, you know, information. And I actually couldn't figure out how to exit. Mm -hmm. Like, all right. I'm a VI guy. VI, that's a problem. Yeah. Right. Somebody told me what to do. So that one I knew, I knew the arcane, you know, language for, uh, whether you're, you know, shift CZ, colon, right, quit, whatever. Like I, I knew that because somebody had told it to me. The Emacs one, they just said, you should try Emacs. Like, okay. Okay, I'll try it. Nobody told me any of the, now what? Like, the meta key. You quit by powering nothing. off the system. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I basically had to walk away from the workstation like, I don't know. Maybe it'll time out eventually. When, I don't know. When I was... I don't know if it's saved. Who knows? So I've been a VI user and more practically, I should say, a Vim user. Um, yeah. And I've got... I, I learned some macros and was able to do some pretty interesting things, um, which would look like broad global search and replace across a bunch of code when you're doing something like refactoring code. And I learned a lot of that from Alviro, who's a kernel hacker, who's absolutely mastered the arcane of probably starting with uh, EX or the precursor to the eye, the non-visual version of uh, the line editor version of the eye. but I'm, I still use VI every day. It's how I take notes. It's how I work, you know, review code. If, if I, if I'm looking at code at all, I don't spend a lot of time writing code at this point. Um, but it's, that's, so my workstation is Fedora, quite a few browser tabs, um, and, <laughs> uh, a bunch of terminal windows that are running things like just, you know, top. And I like to keep VM stat running just because it, do and stallman uh, intended oh yeah because yes. you have vm stat running then that shows you the computer's actually working yeah you need to know <laughs> and, you need to know head, that you, you make the little beeps with your mouth as the vm stack boop, 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 boop. <laughs> yeah. i can i can remember back in those early days when it's like you fire up a program and then you're like okay what do i how do i do anything how what how do i close it how do i get back to my terminal how whatever right yeah yeah <laughs> The days before Google. There were a number of those. You had to read the how-to. Uh, yeah, exactly. Wow. But but now you're stuck in the editor. How do you get to the how-to? Oh, that, <laughs> that's man amazing. Page, man. Yeah, man my, page. My kids can pick up something and just figure it out. And part of it is the way we've approached computing. It's much more about mm-hmm. intuitive. You know, just it's meant to be discoverable. And part of it is uh, they're 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 younger. They haven't had to stay up all night putting something back together after they broke it irreparably. Right. Um, so <laughs> the fear of breaking something is not there. So that's non-existent. Push yeah. random buttons until stuff happens. They're like, oh, look, I figured it out. Hey, it worked. Uh, so it's, why is it pretty cool? Why is it beeping now? I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, that'll fix it. <laughs> that'll fix it. I'm going to go watch something on my tablet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what do you do for fun not in front of a computer? <laughs> well, that's easy. Uh, I'm a cyclist. I love riding my bike. Uh, and so I spend, my time falls into three key areas. One is work, one is family, and one is uh, riding my bike. Hmm. Uh, so sometimes of the year, uh, living in Boston, it's too cold and I like to ski. So I, I like a series of outdoor activities, I'll put it that way. Cycling is my main passion. Uh, I love skiing in the winter. Do, do that wherever possible. I'll do a little bit of running. I live near uh, um, an area that's got trails so I can uh, walk through the woods and that's or, or run through the woods or whatever. Uh, so I'd say a lot of just outdoorsy stuff, but the main thing is cycling. I'm a, and for cycling, I'm 
primarily a road cyclist more than a mountain biker. Uh, and it's been a little weird for the last few months because mm -hmm. when the, um, uh, when the world sh just shut down the first stages of, of COVID around here, I kept going out for bike rides. I, we are the group that I ride with locally. We all decided the right thing to do is ride independently and solo. Uh, so I go for these solo bike rides and it was awesome because it's pretty congested around here and the roads were empty. Yep. And I'd send these, you know, texts and tweets saying uh, the zombie apocalypse is making it pretty fun to ride a bike. And then it just got a little weird and eerie and then slightly depressing. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I just spent more time actually riding my bike inside using Zwift, which is a kind of a gamification way to, to do indoor cycling um, just on a, on an indoor uh, setup that I have where I can ride my bike in, in the basement. Uh, and it's been more recently that I've gone back out and now I feel, you know, I got to have your mask because you never know when you're going to come across people. The roads are a little more crowded and it's, you know, I feel like I'm just sort of re-emerging back into life on, yeah. on a bike and it's, I can see Linking it's not quite the, the same. Sun. Yeah, yeah right. I actually got a sunburn the other day. Just, I haven't been just, just came out of the vault. Sorry, my dogs are going crazy. Crazy dogs. My uh, dogs go crazy when the doorbell rings and they cannot oh. tell if it's the real doorbell or the one on the TV show that my kids are watching. Yeah. So, right? We have one dog that loves to bark at the TV. Certain things on the TV catch her eye and she'll just bark incessantly at the TV and we'll have to like pause whatever we're watching, take the dog out of the room, let her calm down, and then we can go back to watching TV. <laughs> uh, Nerd culture question. That's a fun. All Star right. Trek or Star Wars? Or you can answer Battlestar Galactica. Oh, come on. Does that have to be or? Um, uh, so, not necessarily. I'm one of those two. I like both. You I could know. be like the Taco Bell commercial. Why not both? <laughs> no. I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, as a kid, my very favorite, my first very favorite shirt was it my Star Trek shirt. And it was, had my Star Trek emblem. It had sleeves and the the color versus the 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 rank cuffs and collar and like it, it thing was i love that thing um and so i that was the tv show star trek mm -hmm. uh, and i watched it uh, as often as i could which i grew up in a world where we didn't want, get a lot of tv so it wasn't it wasn't like all the time but um that was definitely a favorite but star wars is the first movie i went and saw in the movie theater mm. and Talk about yeah. having your mind blown and, you know, collecting the action figures and the models that you put glue together so, of R2-D2 and Death Star. But like, yep. All so that. wait a minute. Star Wars was literally the first time you were in a movie theater watching a movie? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. First movie I saw <laughs> was Star Wars. That so is think something. It's, that's the first one I remember was uh, Return of the Jedi on the roof of the car at the drive-in. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't see them in theaters, but they were in heavy... Uh, Heavy rotation on, uh, um, now I have not just the dogs, but the kids are coming in to see me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they were in heavy rotation on just about every network television channel when I was a kid. So I can remember watching pieces of Star Wars all the time because, you know, you'd be flipping through channels and you'd catch, you know, you were two thirds yeah. of the way through and you're like, oh, I know this movie. I'll watch this. 
Well, I was in sixth grade when Star Wars hit, and my dad took me to see it. And I'm yeah, but sort of like you were implying, Chris, I sat there the whole time, like, <laughs> yeah, no, I I was amazed. I absolutely loved it. Um, the Star Trek movies, I didn't have that same experience. I I didn't become an instant lover of the Star Trek movies. I liked the Star Trek show, mm-hmm. uh, and then the more recent Star Trek movies when J.J. Abrams was a director. I uh, actually found those more enjoyable. However, I have to say. I discovered, uh, I watch a, a lot of movies on airplanes and there's this inverse relationship to your how high you are off the ground, your altitude versus your uh, like tolerance or interest in movies. And I find a lot of movies awesome on airplanes and I watch <laughs> them elsewhere. Like that is the worst movie ever. I, don't know why. <laughs> oh I enjoyed it. So not sure I would totally... So, uh, totally vouch for that, but I found J.J. Abrams uh, kind of reintroduction of Star Trek interesting. What I've introduced to my kids is Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, and they've really, really, really uh, in, have enjoyed the entire series. You know, we've watched them in order chronologically as they were released, in order as they were written, and um, and that's been really fun to just frankly watch them again, but discover it through the eyes of of, of yeah. them seeing it for the first time. So yeah. yeah. My current one of my current projects. This is a very important project. Is the Star Wars in chronological story order? Every single piece of Star Wars content on Disney Plus. I'm on season four of the Clone Wars right now. By the way, the Clone Wars is not a kid show. It's a cartoon, <laughs> not a kid show. Like so many cartoons. Be, my 21 year old daughter and I'll be watching it, and she's seen the whole thing already. And something horrific will happen, and we'll turn to each other, and she'll be like, "Yeah, it's a kid show." I'm like, "No, it isn't." <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's a, it feels like a kid's show until you watch it right right ah uh, oh, it's terrible I, so, i've uh, about that on the show before so jason you've been you've been quiet for most of the interview because we had already prepared all these questions so you are you are the only non-red hatter on the show who currently has the ear of the cto of red hat i'm just curious do you have any questions <laughs> oh nothing earth shattering um you know I, red hat's fascinating it's it's someplace that i've kind of watched for the longest time and you know maybe eventually i'll 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 get in there but um you know it sounds like you're not you're not cutting code or anything anymore um you know i've been sort of in a cto role before and you kind of lose all that um do you find what i found was that i had um i was able to get the same amount of pleasure from uh, uh sort of getting behind my team and, and, and sort of paving the way for my team to be able to do great things. Um, as, as I was when I was sort of a lone guy doing, doing things. Is that, is that kind of where you're, you're sitting now as well? Very much so. The way, the way I describe it is you're just hacking on different things. Um, and there's, there's code, uh, there's sort of, architectural levels, which is still very technical, but not literally writing the code. Um, there's also things like, uh, I'll call it hacking, but hacking an organization or trying to understand what it takes to get something done at an organizational level. Uh, and thinking through business challenges, which in, in, the, um, in the time where I was just spending 100% of my time writing code or, or reviewing other people's code, but 100% buried in my in in my laptop on my editor and on mailing lists um 
there was a whole set of business things that I found deeply, deeply uninteresting. Uh, and there's also been technology areas that I didn't really think were interesting at all. And then I found myself working on them and then discovered they're interesting. So in that same context of you think, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not that into pick your technology area. And then suddenly you get into it and realize it's complicated and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. I've discovered that each of the areas that I touch, um, there's a ton to, for me to learn, whether that's organizational, people, business, technology, architecture. Uh, and that's what I love. I love learning. Uh, and, um, and, and I really do enjoy uh, being a part of, of, you know, a bigger, broader thing. Uh, and in, in an open source community, you're part of a, of a community uh, in my role. I'm part of a leadership team that's, that's bringing Red Hat you know, forward. And that in, in either of those cases, it, you're, you're taking on big challenges and applying your skills and, and you know, working with other people. And it, it, it's, it's enjoyable. It's just that they're different things. So I feel like I'm, I'm hacking on different things right now. Uh, but uh, I, I, really, I really do enjoy being, you know, working with a broader team and, and supporting these major efforts. So what is, uh, that you can talk about, what is, uh, I guess the, the one thing that you're, or, or technical or not, but what is the one thing that you're most, most excited about that, that's sort of present or, or up and coming? It's hard. It's always hard to pick the one thing. Uh, and whenever I ask, okay, whenever I'm asked the one thing questions, I always say the one thing I'm most interested in are these three things. And they're connected that's, because that's they fall under one well, of It's the one um, things in array. There you go. Yeah, exactly. It's a nerd. Infinitely long array. Um, so there's a couple of things that I that I'm really excited about right now, and, and it's just for, for very different reasons. One is just the Kubernetes project. It's got so much interest and enthusiasm and excitement around the industry. Uh, it it helps take Linux, which I'm just totally passionate about from a single server operating system to this big distributed system in a way that improves, you know, the ability to do quick development and put things in containers and deploy them at scale. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot of interest in building clustered systems. It's non-trivial. Distributed systems are, are hard. Uh, so creating big complex distributed systems is a cool thing. And, and I'm, I just love Kubernetes and what we're doing in that community, or the, the so associated communities. Um, and what we're doing with it at Red Hat. Uh, that, that one to me is kind of the today, the right now. The thing that's emerging, which isn't brand new emerging, but it's part of an emerging world, is uh, machine learning, AI. It's hard not to be interested in that. It's uh, fascinating Skynet. on a number of levels. Uh, there's, there's the Skynet side. There's just the pure math. It's, it's, it's an interesting set of math problems. Um, there's what's possible, especially when you get to unsupervised learning, where computers are starting to to really help assist humans in ways that we're we're not really taking full advantage of right now, plus all the social implications of what does that mean? There's you know, bias, human bias that enters into these systems, and then we think they're fine because it's a computer, uh, but it's really you know trained with 
biased data and creating bias models. So there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens that in that space. And I think it's, it's, it's an important part of the emerging world of technology. And then the one that's most fascinating, more at a geek level is quantum computing. Uh, and the reason it's so fascinating is it's just sort of a scientific marvel uh, and understanding how, like think of it in the context of how quantum mechanics works, which itself is a very complex field uh, and the ability to create entangled states and you know think of something as not just a one or a zero, but it's a probability distribution and somehow harness that into compute power and then that compute power is exponential with the number of qubits such that a relatively small number of qubits maps to the number of states that you can manage with the molecules on or atoms on the planet to the number of atoms in the universe. And it gets kind of mind boggling. And that we're not at that level of the you know, number of atoms in the universe. Uh, we're not that far from starting to map to the number of atoms on, on the planet, which it's just, it's scientifically fascinating. And it's interesting to see how that compute could be har harnessed to do things like help us discover, uh, it, get insights into the medical world or material sciences or things that need those highly complex models to even ac accurately model um, reality. So hard to put one, maybe each one is in different spaces, completely today, emerging AI and the future quantum, but and, and for very different reasons. Imagine the cat memes that quantum computing will let us create. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. You know, it's funny when you're talking about machine learning and talking about bias, there's a Star Trek episode in the old series about that, right? Remember the ultimate computer when Daystrom, Daystrom programs the M5 using his Angrams because he had to do that because he he had to he he couldn't just huh it would he, he used that as a shortcut oh yeah it's it's pretty amazing i i've said this for a number of years that how how many things shows like star trek got right and how many of that right. they were just way off star trek probably is one of the closest but there's others and i've used this in in previous uh uh shows where you know things like uh what was the was it neuromancer I can't remember. There was a scene. Oh, it was in. Um, no, I can't remember the name of the book. Anyway, there was a scene where it's like you're in this crazy futuristic uh, world, right? Where people like jack into computers with their brain, but yet they're still pay phones, right? And right. So like we don't have pay phones anymore because we've all got phones in our pocket. The author just didn't see that. Didn't see that as a, as a thing. But Star Trek, I mean, like the whole idea of these little portable computers they carry around and the communicators and whatever, they're pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I, yeah. I, I still can't get over the fact that Back to the Future got it wrong and fax machines are not the default method. I know. Of... <laughs> ah, yeah. They got the video yeah. chats on the wall in the living room right, though. They just they just got the year wrong. It was actually 2020 when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, sec the second movie went all in on fax machines. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, in the Ultimate Computer, right when the, uh, when the M5 takes over the Enterprise, uh, Spock starts to question Daystrom on the design, and Daystrom then reveals he's imprinted human engrams into the M5 circuits, creating what amounts to human mind operating at the speed of a computer. Oh. And he admits later he That's used never his engrams. Which, of course, once Kirk realizes that it's, it's that it's his engrams, he then uses that to talk the computer to death. 
Man, I wish I could talk computers. <laughs> this to death sounds like, Kirk like yeah, this sounds like a Star Trek episode. And that was <laughs> uh, that was Iron Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've been at this an hour. I feel like we could go on for another hour or two, but of course, I want to be respectful of your time. So, uh, is there any final thoughts you wanted to give to the Iron Sysadmin audience uh, before we transition on to the next segment of the show? Sure. I don't have any thoughts. I just want to say thank you. Thanks for listening. I, I mean, I hope there's there's something in here that, that resonated with you and you got something out of it. And, um, you know, I know for me, that sort of curiosity and then, you know, sharing your enthusiasm has been a big part of what what's brought me to where I am. And, and so I'd encourage you to stay uh, curious and, and stay engaged and, and share, you know, share your enthusiasm. Yeah, this thanks, has thanks been. Thanks for having me. This has been a great, a great, uh, great segment. I hope, I hope the viewers agree. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> me too. Heck yeah! All right. Well, thank you, and uh, we're gonna move on to our transition. So, folks that are in the uh, in the live stream, just hang on. We'll be back as usual, and uh, we'll, we'll be back. Yeah, you'll Mark, see little Hamilton. <laughs> Mark King will sing. George. Ay, ay, ay. You'll remember you belong to me. I am not Jonathan Groff. I will stop now. No, no, not as good. All right, so thanks. And we're back. Hey, folks. Holla. That was a fun time. I... I do hope that there is a chance we will have Chris Wright back on the show again. <laughs> he seemed to enjoy himself. Yeah, I think so. I think so. At least I hope so. <laughs> I think it could happen again. Yeah, that was fun. Or, or we'll get Paul Cormier on. I mean, why not? Yeah, right. We'll just we'll just go. Okay, we'll have who's them both on together? Who's next above Chris? Let's go there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get Paul that, and Jim on at the same time. There we go. go. Yeah, right. Right. Totally. All right, so that was a good time. As far as announcements go, uh, we have our usual Patreon update. We're making about 72 bucks a month. That's before Patreon takes their tiny little cut. And now there's like an actually, actually a tax thing involved. Patreon has this whole thing going on about how they have to start taking taxes out now, which is blah, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Stupid government. Um so uh, here's well, they our. They need to pay for they need to pay for the COVID implant somehow, right? When yeah, you're you're totally right. Um, I just realized I forgot to eradicate last names from our list of patrons. So oh no! Quick. Yeah, luckily, but they can't see this yet. Luckily, none of you can see it yet. So I'm gonna go ahead and do that. But all right, so our list of patrons as it sits uh, this morning when I pulled it out of Patreon uh, is solemn, spelled in that funny way. Uh, Erwin, Trooper Ish, Linux Sys666, Gimpy B, Ryan, Mark with a K, uh, Dementor from PowerShell on Linux, John, uh, also known as John the Nice Guy, uh, Mark with a C, Julius, Andy, Charles, J, and 22532. Hey, you two. How you doing this month? Yeah, right. I right. like two. He's a good guy. He is a good guy. He was our earliest patron, and he remains a patron, which is awesome. So I'm not going to two two five three two two for short two for short. No, it's actually a, a reference to. I looked this up once. It's a it's a reference to a hacking club, I think, if I remember correctly. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. 
But yeah, before we even had like a real show and anything, he was one of our patrons. I reached that. He was, it was one of the Slack channels I was a member of for another podcast. It was a defensive security. It might've been defensive security. And he found us through there and uh, he became a patron and he's been a patron ever since. So that's awesome. Thank you. I don't even know if he listens to the show. <laughs> okay. Uh, for reviews, we don't have anything new. Um, so, folks, please leave us reviews if you would like to uh, let us know how we're doing. We like reviews. We like to hear good or bad so we know what we should change and what we shouldn't. So, please uh, go ahead and do that. You could do one-word reviews. You could just say groovy. Groovy or horrible. Although, if you say horrible, I would I... like at least some explanation as to why. Or how about horribly groovy? Horribly groovy? Yeah, right. Yeah. That could work. There you go. That could work. Groovably? <laughs> uh, do we... I don't know. Are, are there any conferences coming up that aren't canceled or that maybe have gone virtual that people can uh, can sign up for free? Um, mm. I know DEF CON went virtual and is free. Everything is virtual. Yeah. Hope, right. Hope is virtual. Is it free Hope though? Is, the question, right? So that that's what uh, I'm that's what I'm going for. I'm I'm trying to spread the news of anything that I know of that's virtual and free. You know, right? I don't know if Hope is free or not. I do know that I've gotten I think three or four separate emails now with keynote speakers, and then more keynote speakers, and then more and more keynote speakers. So because it's a virtual, they can have a billion keynote speakers. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Dear conferences, you can only have one keynote speaker. That's what makes it a keynote speaker. <laughs> the rest of them are just speakers. Well, they have like, you can have like keynote presentations where it's got several speakers in a row, right? But if there's a hundred yeah, of them, I guess then it becomes a problem. Yeah. I think they're up to like, I don't know, let's see, four, they're up to at least eight, I think. But I think it's more hmm. than that. I think they have like 10 or 10 or 12 keynote speakers. <laughs> is there obnoxious. a rule there? Now I'm going to ask Google. Is there a rule about how many keynote many speakers you can have? keynote speakers can you have? As many as you'd like. We're going to find out. Yeah, Hope 2020 is not free. Very not free. Like Very not free? not free? Wow. Yeah, it's 200, 200 bucks a ticket. And it's virtual. Yep. I'm curious how that's going to work out for them. Yeah, yeah. My my son is a is a speaker. Mm -hmm. So he's so, free, uh, right? So I here's some so, interesting. I'm not paying for it. Here here's some <laughs> interesting uh, notes from from a couple of places on the internet about how many on the internet is true. You can have. <laughs> it says an opening keynote speaker is brought in to set the underlying tone and summarize the core message or most important revelation of the event revelation now we're a bunch of baptists right if an event <laughs> is held over a longer period it is not unusual to have a different keynote speaker for each day of the event yeah which is i think the way summit is right yeah there's, summit there's has several a keynote each day summit has several keynotes usually per day but then there's like there's evening keynotes and no, then there's daytime day. keynotes. And then this thing on Quora, but Quora is basically some guy's opinion. Yeah. These days, it's not uncommon to have multiple keynotes at a single conference, opening and closing, one each day, one each park day, one each track. Uh, one each blah, track, blah, blah, blah. one each yeah. one each talk. There's a keynote for every talk. <laughs> maybe you just call them keynote speakers so they feel better about themselves. Could be, could be. Yeah. The keynote for every talk. I think we got keynote inflation going on. Keynote inflation. That's totally what's going on. I'm with Jason. There should be one. 
There should be, be only one. one. Yeah. Oh, it's it like Highlander. Be. Have all the have all the competing speakers who want to be. There can be speakers. only one. Fight, <laughs> and whichever one remain, whichever one gets to keep their head, that's the prize. They get to be the keynote speaker. Yeah, yeah, Hope has great. nine keynote speakers right now. One, wow. one of which is Corey Doctorow, which which I would love to see. Yeah, and another one which is uh, Jaron Lanier. Which it is, only only costs you two hundred bucks, man. Uh, I will attempt to ride on my son's coattails. Yeah, and by that, I mean, want. he's going to get a ticket somehow, and I'm just going to use his. That's just funny. Just look over his shoulder. Ride on my coattails. <laughs> All right, so Mark, you have anything fun going on? So I had a couple of things I threw on the agenda. I see. Um, so I've got my home lab, right? And for my backend storage, I have the Synology NAS thing. And for a, for a kind of fun project I've been working on with the Linux firmware uh, foundation people, uh, it, it has to do with some stuff I'm doing with satellite right now. Hmm. And it was dogging. It was going so slow. And, and so I, I would look in top and look in VM stat, and the thing was spending a ridiculous amount of time in wait states, which generally yeah. means you have an I.O. problem. Mm -hmm. So I start poking around, and, and, I, and I look on the NAS, the network settings on the NAS through the web UI, and the friggin' thing's at 100 megabits per second. And, and yeah. what I had done is... is, is I want to say about a year ago, I had moved from my home office to behind the TV in the family room mm -hmm. just to clear up some space. I'm like, oh, I'll just plug it right into the router and, and things will be good. Sure. Well, for whatever reason, the stupid thing just locked on to 100 megabits per second. And, and it was awful. Oh, it's meant to be so, gig. That's the point. That's what you're saying. It's meant to be gig. Right? I get it now. So, so I, I deep side shut my entire rev infrastructure down and moved it under my desk where it's directly plugged into the into the gigabit switch which the rev servers are plugged into yeah and now the sucker's cooking with gas Kaboom. it's actually it's actually megabit connections again. you, you so, put it under your desk yeah that, that way makes it I can enterprise actually, ready yeah it is enterprise right. ready which also means if i'm not careful and i'm just stretching around my feet you i can, can turn potentially it off kick I could kick the power button. Oh my god! Which will which will freeze my rev lab. This, so I'm in great shape. Right. This brings which up, then makes it a sev one outage. This yeah under your desk. This brings up memories, right? So when I I've talked before on the show about this little memories. web host, this little web host that I worked at. Well, we had there were two admins there, right? And we were we basically the office that they put the two of us in was small enough that we had only one way to arrange our desks, and that was that we had. Two straight. Only one. We had two straight desks along, you know, one wall of the office, and the whole rest of the office was like storage for all of our spare parts, which were like scavenged from all the dead servers, and uh, like a coat rack. We put our coats, and that was like all the room we had. Uh, well, underneath that desk was a very long power strip, like one of these. It was meant to go on like a side rail of a rack. Right. That's how yeah. long it was. Right. And our our desktops. How long was it? Our desktops were plugged into these things. Well. The the assistant admin sometimes would stretch out his legs and hit the damn power switch on this power strip. And he would shut down both our machines in an instant. Oh, <laughs> it was just like, you did it again, Sean, didn't you? Yeah. Harsh. <laughs> Harsh. Yeah, so it was never uh, never good when that happened. It only happened a few times. Um, and eventually we convinced the boss that we needed small UPSs for our our machines in case the power were to go out or you know he kicks the switch <laughs> hey, 
That's funny though, because like my desktop machine, I'll air quote it, my desktop is actually a laptop. So yeah. if I kick the power for that, it's not going anywhere. Built-in battery backup. Yeah. Built-in battery backup. But so so that was kind of cool though. And now my satellite server, and, and it's been running like a bit of a dog. I feel like I'm insulting my dogs. It's Poor been dog. like a bit of a dog recently. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I actually feel like I accomplished something with that. Which yeah, is good. that is good. Uh, I've also, uh, some of you might've read my blog series, uh, world domination with C groups part eight. There was a critical bug fixed with SE Linux. Yeah. Uh, some would say that the critical bug with SE Linux is that it exists, but you can hush your mouth. If you say that <laughs> uh, critical one. bug was Dan fixed. Dan Walsh was, will cry. Yeah. Let, let's not yes, make him Dan, cry. Dan Walsh will come after you. <laughs> I like Dan Walsh. Uh, did, did I tell you? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna Greg Scott here. I'm gonna go down a rabbit hole. Did I tell you <laughs> Clay Newster House? Were, you remember that, yeah, Clay, that time? Clay Newster House. <laughs> were you a Red Hatter when Dan Walsh was in New York yet, Nate? When uh, we were at the user group meeting, or was that prior to your time? I do not recall meeting Dan Walsh in New York. If that's what so you're Dan asking. Walsh, Dan Walsh came to New York, and I was like some weird, some like teenage girl, like meeting like. <laughs> I guess today it would be like a, a K-pop star. And and Dan travels with his wife. And there's a bunch of us nerds here basically worshiping her husband. And, <laughs> and she's his like, wife, his wife is just like, y'all are y'all are like this with him all the time, and I just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's nice. Yeah. That was that, but so Dan Walsh, I was definitely fangirling on Dan Walsh, but uh, what that? What did that have to do with any? Oh, right. So I don't know. My new Second Force One blog. Right. <laughs> That's all it SC, took. <laughs> there was a bug with the SE Linux policy that was stopping uh, C Groups V2 from working with uh, CPU sets, which is now fully supported. So if you're if you're into performance uh, and you like control groups, or if you're into performance and you've never looked at control groups. Again, I've got a whole blog series about them, and the, my latest edition will talk about CPU sets on C Group V2. So that's in marketing and legal review right now. Oh, good. And, th and then finally, because I'm a crazy person, uh, I'm playing EverQuest again. I saw that, and it, it brought back funny memories. One of my <laughs> oldest friends, one of my college buddies, uh, Jim, he and I got into EverQuest my account that I'm using now is 14 years old. Okay. It is not my original EverQuest account. I yeah. actually deleted my original EverQuest account at some point because I'm like, this game is stupid and I'm getting addicted to it. I'm done. So it's my second EverQuest account, which was created 14 years ago. Yeah. So you're playing uh, but, EverQuest like proper, not like some emulated server? Correct. Because what Sony realized, they're not Sony anymore. They're, they're now owned by Daybreak. The, the, okay. the EverQuest property. Okay. They they have what they call progression servers where they they launch the server and it starts with just the classic content, like oh. level one through one through fifty, <clears throat> just the original zones. There's some some of the stuff is modern. Like you can see the new character models and stuff, and there there's a couple of systems, like the experience isn't quite as slow as classic. Ugh. But <laughs> like you got to sit down and med. You can't. Most classes can't solo. I'm playing an Enchanter, and I've never seriously played an Enchanter, but it's hella fun. Yeah. Well, my friend Jim, he he was on a he was on a, a Discord server the other day, 
that one of our coworkers runs. And I haven't talked to Jim in a while, actually. He and I, he and I get together, hang out every so often, and then we kind of drift apart. But but he's one of these friends who like, if I haven't talked to him in two years and we get together, it's like we never we never were yeah. apart. Right. We got that we've been friends for that long. But he answered someone's question about database stuff because that's what he does for a living. He's a database nerd. And I noticed that Discord said he was playing EverQuest. I'm like, you're playing EverQuest? And he's like, yeah, I'm on a progression <laughs> server that just started a month ago. So I'm like, nice. Holy moly. So I uh, the day, the next day, I downloaded the client and got activated my account. And is, so, it, is it free to play now? Or do you have so to pay? It can be free to play, but to plan the progression servers, you need to give them money. Okay. But it is worth it. It is t- it's 14 bucks a month. It's yeah, totally I mean EverQuest got so weird and muddy mm. after all the all the expansions that it really I mean I left it long before all the expansions hit, but it just it turned into a whole different game, but there is this weird spot in my brain for for EverQuest and I don't know what it was right. about EverQuest. But it was just it's... it was this perfect I felt like it was this perfect blending between an old school mud and a graphical game. Right. It yeah. still had a lot of elements with the chat window and the way you could interact with things via text and and the the way the quests were set up and the way things ran. It just it felt so classic, so text based yeah. mud. But well, yet you had a graphical interface where you could so, interact with things. So let's be completely honest about EverQuest at launch. Right. EverQuest at launch had very few actual quests you would go on. Yeah. Like the actual epic quest lines weren't introduced until Coon Arc. Right. So what EverQuest really is, especially in the classic mold, is you get together a party of adventurers, you find a camp or you find a zone or whatever, and you're basically just killing monsters for for yes. experience and treasure. Yes. And it's hard. Like, it is. It's hard. Like the game the and and there's some systems that like, for instance, when you die, when you used to die, you'd leave your corpse and all your stuff would be on your corpse. You'd have to go and find the corpse your, and pull it back. If you corpse back in time, it would go away. It's all your gear. You yeah. Can, yeah right? It doesn't do that anymore. You do lose experience <clears throat> after level six, but your corpse responds with all your gear. So it doesn't kick you in the, in the, in, in That's no, in that's not EverQuest yeah. then. <laughs> but it's almost ever. Well, compared to a lot of the games, you still, if you're killed, you still respond at your bind point, which could be halfway around the world. Yep. You still need to, you still need, you still need to get a res to get experience back. Yeah. But, it, but it, being bound in Freeport and dying in Quinos, I mean, there was nothing quite like the trek across the world that was ahead of you for oh, the no. next six hours and because you had to get it done. Scary. Otherwise, everything was gone. Yeah. And Kithakor is scary. <laughs> and Kithakor is scary. Poor, poor yeah. Jason's over there like EverQuest. Uh... Uh, did Jason, Jason, <laughs> did you play EverQuest? No, no, no. I, 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 you missed out. Took, <laughs> well, I took a look at it. It didn't, it didn't really hold my my interest so much. I was playing Muds at the time, so yeah, yeah, it's much more interested in that. Yeah, well, e- then, uh, EQ was like I said, it was like this weird blending of a mud and a yeah, and a outside of a game. mud, outside of muds, I think my first MMO would have been uh warcraft yeah warcraft i beta tested that and Mm -hmm. then played it um all the way up until the night that i would have gotten level 60 which was back in the day when that was the the top (laughs) yeah so that night i had i had set it up we were gonna you know 
raid in and, and we're going to get my level 60 and, and we're all good to go. And I fired up my laptop and the screen wouldn't turn on. And I, uh, I, I basically canceled work. I didn't, couldn't afford a new laptop and yeah. I didn't have anything to run it on. So, yeah. uh, that's when I stopped playing Warcraft and then I don't know, maybe two or three years ago, whenever it went, whenever it went free, I yeah. fired it up and I'm like, oh, I'll give it a shot. And I played for about five minutes and went, this is not Warcraft anymore. Screw no, it's this. totally and different. It, off. It's, it was garbage. It was there like, is... it's the easiest thing in the world. It was like, they this, did... there's no challenge anymore. They did right. restart, essentially, and they have a separate classic game you can play now. So I don't know yeah, if that interests you at all. You pay for that. No, no, no it's that. not free. No, no, no. My, I do not do well with MMOs. Um, oh right, because you get like, sucked in. It, it's it's kind of like crack cocaine. Yeah, uh, which is exactly what Muds did to me. So yep. uh, I quite purposely avoid those games like the plague. Yeah, there was a point where I was. I realized that EverQuest was taking up a whole bunch of my time, and I literally sold my account to a coworker and said, "I don't want to play this anymore because it's bad for me. You can have it." Well, the yeah. problem is that you can't not do that if you ever want to get anywhere in the game it's just it's not possible to casually play an mmo yeah and get anywhere you're never you're always going to be behind not you're never going to be able to actually complete anything right so so they had a 76 percent experience boost during from the friday i started until last night mm-hmm. so i started at level one on july 3rd this this is gonna sound crazy tna Last night I dinged thirty-eight. Wow, that is insane, right? EverQuest never went that fast. No, no. I mean, it took me months to get to like level thirty or whatever, maybe twenty. Right, and and (laughs) so there's two there's two things going on. The experience progression, even without the buff, is a little faster on progression servers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the seventy-six percent boost to experience was was actually insane. But yeah. I will point out there there is an MMO that you can basically get everything in the game just by not playing it. Um, I don't know what the name of it is. My my wife was watching a video the other day. Eve online, uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> this 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 uh, this guy, this YouTuber, uh, the Lazy Peon, did a did a video on this. And basically, you fire the game up, and it is one hundred percent on rails. The movement the combat every part of the game is on rails and all it does is pop things up on the screen that you have to click on and it constantly takes you to pages to pay for the game nice he went from oh, that's level, not even online he went from level <laughs> one to level 100 without ever touching the keyboard in like a half hour well there was a uh, there was a little joke game written called progress quest which literally I mean, it, it's funny. It was it was basically to mock EverQuest, but it essentially plays itself. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that in the show notes because it's pretty funny. Yeah, we have talked about Progress Quest before, I think. So, but anyway, the progression server for me, there's so much nostalgia there that um, I don't know how long I'll end up playing. I'm gonna play as long as Jim's playing uh, because for me, it's a it's a social thing with him. And we've got, you know, he's in a guild with some folk that I've only met online. But if he stopped playing, I'd probably bail. And I probably, as 
every 12 weeks, they're going to drop a new expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably good for at least a year or two because that's content I played in the original game that I never got to experience at that expansion's launch. Yeah. So there's some things I want to try. Uh, like I want to try and get the Coldane Shawl in Velius, which was the, the second expansion. You know, I never, I, I, I never got to do that because I wasn't part of a guild that, uh, that worked that content. And by the time that I could do it on my own, it was, it was antiquated. Yeah. So whatever. But that's what I'm doing. So those are three fun things. Plus our D&D game keeps going. Yeah. Nate plays in that on Tuesday nights. That's been a lot of fun. That has been fun. We burned down a building. Lots of cheese. Lots of cheese. A whole lot of cheese on that map. <laughs> <laughs> so many slices of American cheese. No, I was I was using... Uh, no, it was, was Monster, drawing, remember? It was Monster, right, because it had the red border. <laughs> yeah. I was, drawing, I was drawing orange squares and they, with the little red border to show where the building was burning. And one of the players is like, that building is covered with slices of cheese. Because, you know, like... <laughs> Because it looked like, like deli that. cheese. It looked like deli cheese, right? It was funny. <laughs> I got good players. It is a good. It is a good group of people playing that game, and it's it's good content. You you're doing a good job with it. It's fun. Thank you. Anyway, that's all I got. So my Jeep is finally back on the road, or at least I mean it's still in the garage, but I'm dry. It's drivable again, which is you know. <laughs> it's street legal. Well, I mean that's that's debatable. Depends on what inspection mechanic you go to, and if you pass a cop. So <laughs> it's, it's not street. It's legal. totally street legal, and that's the story I'm sticking to. Because right. <laughs> we're in kind of a vague place in the Commonwealth now, anyway, because they've extended certain dates and stuff like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, the Jeep works again. I've I've talked several times on the show about how my Jeep was in pieces, and I just figured I would close up that story with, yes, it, it works again, which is amazing. Uh, so that was fun. Took me, I think, two months <laughs> to get from start to finish. But I had yeah. the whole, I had the engine torn apart, not like down to like crazy engine stuff, but like I had the whole top of it torn off to put on a new seal and the whole bottom of it torn off to put oh, on a new oh. seal. And, oh. Yeah. Those kind of seals. That's what that's what we did, <clears throat> and it, yeah, it was interesting. Um, the other thing that I did recently, since I don't have to worry about working on the Jeep anymore with all my spare time, I finally moved all of my so I my web presence for both Underground and Iron Sysadmin and my Jeep site and a few other little things were all containerized in Docker on a CentOS uh, seven box on DigitalOcean. And uh, I finally moved that to uh, CentOS 8 on DigitalOcean in Podman, which meant I had to go from Docker Compose to something that supported Podman because there is no Docker Compose on Podman. Uh, there is, there is like what's that? So, so a Bash script. No. So, right. So the, the thing I was using Docker Compose for was not just to define the service, but to define the dependent services and sort of link them together. So that if I wanted to take an entire service down, I could. If I wanted to update an entire service, I could just by using Docker Compose. Take the whole thing down, make a new container, bring it back up again. Boom, it's updated. But every time he did that, Dan Walsh cried. <laughs> Maybe. No, he's, SE Linux was turned on. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But anyway, um, so Podman doesn't have Docker Compose or Podman Compose. Well, it kind of does. There is a project called Podman Compose, which is not quite the same as Docker Compose. And it's not done, as far as I can tell. It's not like feature. It doesn't have feature parity to, to Docker Compose yet. Uh, so I thought there must be a Podman alternative to something like Docker Compose, something that I can link services together, something that I can you know, treat them all as a, as a, as a unit, right? And it turns out it does. Podman has a concept of pods, which is very similar to Kubernetes pods, which encapsulate a service, right? So I figured out how to take my Docker Compose information and turn it into a Podman pod definition. Uh, it's actually a Kubernetes pod definition, which then Podman is able to translate and turn into a Podman pod. And this this was all a bit of a process because I had to figure out how to get what I had and make it a Kubernetes pod. Uh, and the documentation for Kubernetes pods is a bit too broad because Podman's implementation of the pods is a little more limited, right? So you can't just go and write a Kubernetes pod and expect it to work in Podman. Maybe you can, but uh, there's it's limiting, right? So uh, I basically went through this process where I manually defined, say, a WordPress pod. And then I used Podman itself to export it into a YAML file, which defines a Podman Kubernetes pod, right? Then I brought it right back into uh, Podman as a pod, right? So now I can define my services as Podman pods in these in these YAML files, which is really what I wanted to begin with. I wanted to be able to define all this in a YAML file. And so I can stop and start my pods using these things. Um, and it's all good. I wrote a blog about it, and it's in the show notes. Uh, so it's on Underground, you know, the main site. And uh, it is the latest thing that I've written. So if you go to underground.org, you'll be able to see it. So, yes, I have Podman pods now. It's pretty cool. And I see Joshua is just behind us in the chat. Yes, I wrote a thing on it. <laughs> a thing with the stuff. A thing with the stuff. So, yeah, his, his commentary is basically uh, compose equals a pod. And he says he hopes I wrote a blog about it. Yes, I wrote a blog about it. And I don't know that I would say compose equals a pod. I would say that what I was using Docker Compose for equals a pod in Podman, right? And that was to group services and have a flat file that I could define them in, right? So now I can take this and put it on another Podman server and bring up the same service, assuming I, I move all my content over with it. So that is essentially what I'm doing. So yes, Joshua, you can... In fact, I'm just going to take this link and put it in the chat. So, uh, so yeah, that's what I've been working on. And now Joshua has a project for the weekend. Indeed. There you go. Have at it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I've been doing. That's that's pretty much the excitement that I've I've been going through. Looks like you've been doing stuff with 3D printers. Yeah, that's about the only... I mean... Uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, survive this post-apocalyptic wasteland without uh, losing my mind. Nah. Uh, I'm still doing okay I with got, that. Yeah, well, I don't know. It, just, it hit me yesterday, day before. I just, I don't know. I feel like I have depression at this point. Um, no, I, I have the, I had gotten an Inner 5, um, which I've, I've, I may have mentioned before. I printed a thing. It's neat. It actually came out really really nice and my son's been playing with 3d printers for a while and he mentioned uh, uh and i've seen mentioned elsewhere this thing called octoprint 
which is like a a way to control your 3D printer from a Raspberry Pi uh, effectively wirelessly. Um, so I, you know, you put this distribution on the Raspberry Pi, plug it into your printer. It connects the your the Raspberry Pi connects to wireless, and then you can send all sorts of commands and everything else to the Raspberry Pi. Um, plus, you can do other cool things like uh, hook up a, a video camera to it, take um, pictures of what's going on, see live video. It's 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 pretty slick. So it's pretty cool. So I I kind of went. Oh, that sounds cool. So I went and got a uh, a shiny new Raspberry Pi four, um, and I got the recommended camera I saw, which is I don't know if you've seen the Raspberry Pi cameras, which is like a little yeah. tiny board with uh-huh. a brick on it. Yeah, this camera is a is a is that little tiny board with a camera on it. It's like about <laughs> yay long. That's cool. Um, it won't reach over. It's plugged in at the moment, so it won't reach over here. But it's it's this humongous camera. It looks like a uh, an SLR. Um, so I'm printing uh, uh, parts now to try to arrange it so that I can have the camera pointing at the at the print as it's going, um, so I get some decent captures of it. But it's cool. It does all sorts of neat stuff. Um, so I've been playing around with that. It's got plugins and everything else. I'll, I'm going to blow it up at some point. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's what 3D printers are for. Like, look yeah, what right. I can do. Oh, it's on fire. Crap. Oh, no. Um, uh, no, it I might was... catch on literal fire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's funny. Kidding. Yeah, there's there's warnings on Octoprint because a lot of people, or a lot of people, well, enough people that the Internet Storm Center noticed it, a lot of people put Octoprint directly on the Internet. And Octoprint <laughs> has a um, like a username and password to log into it. So there's all manner of warnings when you're installing this thing that says, do not put this on the internet unless you know what you're doing. Bad stuff. The username and password is not enough. Yeah. And what one of the things that they explained is like, in order to load firmware onto your 3D printer, you have to plug into your 3D printer with a USB cable. Mm-hmm. Guess how Octoprint connects to your 3D printer? With a USB so, cable? Right. So So I'll, people can put firmware on your US on your on your three D printer yes. if they were take to, over yeah. Take over your Octoprint server, use that to boot firmware onto the three D printer Which does that doesn't things. have like the safeties on it. Yeah. Right. That doesn't have the safeties on it. Burn your house down. Turn the thing on and have it heat up as much as possible and you burn somebody's house down. And so, no yeah. nobody would do that. The internet is a safe place. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, <laughs> the Internet Storm Center noticed an awful lot of Octoprint servers live on the internet, and and apparently, you know, this was a while ago. That's a conspiracy. A That's not said, true. Like, Please don't do that. Totally not true. So, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, I'm having fun with it. So that's cool. Um, uh, I also learned uh, uh, what not to do with a spool of filament, um, and that is let go at the end of it. Because then it goes, um, which, which anyone who's know, owned okay. a fishing rod knows that's knows right. that, how that ended. Okay, you wound it back up, but <laughs> if you let go of the end of it and it somehow slips underneath another uh, uh, spool of, of wire, yeah, um, it binds up later on. So, yep. Mark watched me uh, rewind my spool a couple minutes ago. <laughs> nice. So that's that's about it. That and that's cool. uh, you know losing losing my mind at work. Yeah, well that'll happen. That'll happen. All right. So I guess in that case, uh, we can move along into the news and try to the tie news. this show up because it apparently we've been live for two hours already. 
Yeah, but there was a lot of. We did have like a half pre- hour. Yeah. Yeah, there was the preteen girl meltdown. Yes. That was. Yeah, we had a like a half hour or so transition in the middle there. It felt like a half hour. Sorry about that, folks. Yeah, my my nine year old is trying to set up the uh, Nintendo Switch, so her and her cousins can play. Her cousins are also in the physically in the living room with her, and uh, yeah, the controller wasn't working for her, so that was the reason to barge on in and have a meltdown. Scream like a crazy person. Luckily, it was during our uh, our break. <laughs> Did you make it work? No, she. Uh, I was trying to make it work, and she gave up and said, "Let's just watch a movie." So they're watching a movie now. Hunted to watch a movie. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah. That's so. a win condition. What were they watching? I have, have no, no idea. idea. I really don't know. I switched the TV back to the Roku and walked away. <laughs> For With all disgust. I know, they're watching Basic Instinct right now. <laughs> and you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you. They're, they're girls. It has a different, you know. Yeah, it's right. It's different when yeah. it's a girl. Right. Right. And because I'm reminded of the fact that we have the, that I have the soundboard in front of me, I also want to play all of you our newest soundbite, which Mark has already heard on our on our soundboard, which is, yay, <laughs> yay. <laughs> <laughs> so we have that now. It's the first time I've added something to the soundboard uh, since I made that transition music. So. For the first time in forever. You trying to get that on the soundboard as well? Uh, You know, (laughs) a man can dream. (laughs) I was editing the show last week, and that was literally right before we transitioned last time. I forget what I said, but you responded with that as I was hitting the button. And I'm like, I have to make this a (laughs) soundbite. I I approve. Seal of approval. Oh, oh. Indeed. Indeed. So now we have that. I can play that at will. Whenever I want. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's right. not going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our first news article for tonight comes from uh, Computer Business Review, which I don't know if I've ever heard of is before. That even a real thing? It goes by CBR. Maybe this is completely f- fake news, but I, it came across my Google search, so it must be true, right? Is is that the one with the is that the one with the uh, horrified stock? Yes, it's picture? the one with yeah. the with the horrified straight, woman in the uh, stock photo. Straight from the GM so shocked department. Yeah, but right. She was really so, what she she had really just found out about the horrible STI that her weekend hookup gave her. But you know they used it for this computer article. Yeah, that's probably it. This is like <laughs> this is this is a picture from the. The, that MTV uh, teen mom show, right? Yeah, something like <laughs> Anyway, it's not about teen moms or, or STDs at all. Uh, it's about AWS is harvesting AI customers' content by default and storing it outside users' selected regions. So there's a few things to unpack here. Uh, one is that there are a number of products uh, from Amazon, and I read them during the transition to you guys so that you would know what they now were. Now I have to scroll down. Now I got to find they're, where they are, were again. Here we go. They are uh, things like the Code Guru Profiler and Recognition and Transcribe, Fraud right. Detector, and more. 
Yeah. So the the list that's in this article anyway is Code Guru Profiler, Lex, Poly, Recognition with a K, uh, Textract, Transcribe, and Translate. And there's another section. They, they're talking all about the terms of service, right? And they, they, they say in section 6.4, so they've broken these apart by what section you can find them in. Uh, so the next list is just SageMaker, and then Fraud Detector, and Mechanical Turk. Oh, and Augmented AI. Uh, so these are all services which you can use on Amazon, which uh, basically, you know, you just, as you would on AWS, right? You plug in your credit card number and as you can you start wish. doing AI, right? Uh, in the term, the default terms of service, or in the terms of service, it says Amazon might or will mine the data that you put into this service. By default, this is turned on. And no one really noticed because... Who reads the terms of service? The damn thing. Right. It's only so, it's only fifteen thousand words. I don't right. understand why you wouldn't read this. Right. There's there's like a generalized data privacy FAQ which doesn't mention it. Right. In fact, the, the this FAQ says AWS gives you ownership and control over your content through simple, powerful tools that allow you to determine uh, where your content will be stored. Okay. So uh, the other piece to this thing is that this data once it's mined and amazon does its thing with it could be stored in a in a location other than what region you have started the service up in so if you started it say within the u.s uh, amazon could and this is in theory i'm not saying they're doing this amazon could be storing it in china right so like data sovereignty stuff data sovereignty um regulations for your business and your data could now be getting like broken because of where this data is being stored, right? And sure. guess whose fault Violet. that is? Guess whose fault that is? Of guess course, it's is. the customer's fault because they it didn't turn it off. It is absolutely the customer's fault. Right, because they didn't read the terms of service. Right, so um, I agree with that to an extent, but I still feel like this is shady, right? The fact that they buried it in the terms of service. And then on top of that, so the reason nobody really noticed it, or the reason people have noticed it now, I should say, the reason they didn't notice it is because of burying the terms of service. But um, previously, to turn this off, you had to know it was on by default, and you had to open a support case with Amazon to turn it off, right? No big deal. It's not like they fought you over this or whatever. You'd ask them to turn it off. Uh, what they've done recently is they changed the UI, I guess, in the AWS Management Console so that it's now like a checkbox or a radio button. You just hit, and it says, no, don't do this, or yes, you can go ahead and do this. And this got turned on for people's services and they're like what now this is on by default why didn't you ever tell me this and then of course that draw that drew people's eye to this and they found it in the terms of service and ta-da here we are and jeff bezos yeah jeff bezos says i did tell you i totally told you it's a big pile of money <laughs> yeah right he went to his <laughs> he, he well, dove but, into his Scrooge I mean, mcduck swimming yeah. pool We've we've been playing the click through the Eula game for how many years now? Right, like, forever. Right. So, so I mean, so the, the companies know that and they take advantage of this. Microsoft yeah. does the same thing. Oh no, I'm they not. All, I'm not you know, saying that Amazon is is the devil for this. I'm saying that yeah, Amazon I mean, is the latest one who's been caught doing it. Go go read the Eula for Windows 10. I don't really want because, to because because <laughs> you know I I don't know what's changed now, but like when it first came out, like all of your data belonged to them. Mm -hmm. All of it. All your like basic live typing to data belong to them. Yeah. So, I mean, this this really calls to attention the, the big thing, right? Uh, companies have been doing this forever. 
users have been ignoring it forever, and we don't learn our lessons. Shocked Pikachu face. Can we design a, an AI ML tool that will read the EULA for us? <laughs> yes, and, and summarize just give it. Us the, give us the bad shit. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, dumbass! Don't click it before so, I talk to you. It really does. It really does make Get Chris me right back on the phone. Yeah, right. It really does make me wonder, right? Because Chris, we got a job for you. I have to imagine that there are companies that have used these services that maybe say have legal services on retainer or have a legal department of their own that whose job it is to review this stuff, right? Isn't that the way business is supposed to be carried out? Am I wrong here? No, no, no. It, well, it depends on the size of the business, but yes. Yeah. So especially when yeah. you're especially when you're dealing with content that is under uh, that is auditable or or under some sort of um, uh, you know like PCI or or HIPAA or you know some sort of government regulation, then yes, you have you have entire departments dedicated to compliance. Right. So, I guess my question is. Did they all miss this or did they see it and say, yeah, you, we need to make sure we turn this off before we go live and just never said anything to the world in, at large. No, and they, that's why they, no they most noticed. likely missed it. They most likely missed it. I mean, the one thing, and I'm not going to talk, I, it's not every company, but the most, the one thing that I've noticed a lot about compliance is that they're, they, they don't always check these things directly themselves. Yeah. Um, they'll rely on going to, you know, the IT guy because remember, the way that the way that big companies the way that big companies work you've got a compliance department which yeah. are all of the they're more legal experts than anything right. else right they don't not necessarily, necessarily understand technical. the technology right okay. you've got a security right. department you've got the security department that has to like enforce all this stuff that the compliance department wants and you've got the IT department that implements things so the and legal so person the the, le the the security group goes to the legal people and say hey can you review this thing and let us know if we're getting anything crazy no, the legal no, group no, no, goes no. to the IT person and says hey can you review this thing and see if we're getting no, anything crazy no, it's much easier and the than IT that. guy is like i don't got time for this shit it's much easier than that <laughs> when something gets implemented the compliance guy says okay we're going to implement this what tools are you using uh, okay so th they don't store anything anywhere right Oh, no, of course not. Yeah, right. Like the IT guy read 15,000 lines of legalese. Give me a break. Right, exactly. The security, the security team just practices saying no. Yeah, right. The security people just said no. <laughs> well, that's patch not it. always true. But yeah, no. right. No yeah. and patch. patch it. No. <laughs> yeah. Now, some of the more, some of the more uh, uh, edge companies are starting to, com to, well, first of all, they're realizing that compliance is security and security is compliance. Duh. War so is they're combining peace. those departments Freedom together. Is slavery. And then and then beyond that, they're starting to integrate security with IT. And then you have this this sort of amalgam of compliance, security, and IT all together. And it, you know, you can move much faster and make much better decisions that way. So what we need is an IT lawyer. Is that what you're saying? They exist, but yes. Probably very Most of them are what sucked you, up by Oracle. Honestly, what we need is <laughs> for is, not for for nefarious term means for right? nefarious. So, yeah, Oracle's nefarious. They just do you remember? Yeah, do you remember a couple years ago when privacy policies started getting simpler? I, I, I swear there was a law or something that was passed that said that they just had to be in clear, sort of like the well, Truth in Lending Act. terms. Yeah, right. A Some, lot of that. Those lines. Didn't a lot of that come from like a lot of the European based? It's possible. Changes? Could be. Right. But they get around it by having Later, a clear Josh. privacy policy that says, oh, you have complete control over everything, right? 
And of course, it's small and concise, very quick. And then they have the terms of service, which is like, you know, 12 books written in tiny, tiny print that nobody ever reads, where it says, you totally have control of the service if you sacrifice a goat at midnight during your blood moon, blah, 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 you know, et cetera. Right. So, you know, they told you. They told you. You just didn't didn't read read it. it. Yeah, you're right. It does fall on the user, and that's unfortunate, right? It's unfortunate that we can say, yes, we told you, but we can do it in such a way where you are pretty sure nobody read it. Right. And right. I don't mean to I don't mean to, you know, crap on the user and say it's all your fault. I think it is it is uh, arguably unethical to have this as a default opt in. Yes. When you're when it comes to something like this, I, I know why they're doing it. I mean, it's it, it you know, when it comes down to they need to make money and mm-hmm. this is how they make money. I right. understand why they're doing the customer it, but... is the product in that case. Right. Exactly. It's the, and... But um, okay. What are, what's the European stuff called? Oh, GDPR. G- yeah. GDPR. GDPR because GDPR says the default has to be no. Well, you that, have to, default, G- it has to be default opt out. GDPR says it has to be default opt out when it comes to privacy and user data. Yes. Well, private, could, right. Private. Ar- uh, yeah, and and user data is very very specifically identified. Right. So uh, AI down to, down to like your IP address is is considered right information. So data you've asked AI to crunch on may not be protected data, mm. but it it may be, it may be sensitive to your business, but it may not be protected from uh, from a person's standpoint. Also, also keep in mind that the terms of service that you sign in the u.s is different from the terms of service that you sign sitting in britain Mm. certainly so it's entirely possible that it's default opt-out overseas yeah i think we can all agree that it's definitely shady on amazon's part i call this shady shady. i definitely call it shady so that's my buyer beware right that's my latest rant against uh aws no secret i don't like aws <laughs> have you tried azure have i tried azure? azure? i have not i have not uh, i would probably like hate aws after that oh no <laughs> <laughs> and that's the and best not... that's as close to a sales pitch for aws you'll get out of jason <laughs> no i, I actually it's the I, I it's like the AWS. least worst <laughs> it, it, uh well, well as we'll find out later about... oracle has a cloud too so you know there's definitely a worst Oh yeah, yeah. If Oracle has a cloud, that's definitely one that I will never be attending you know, on. There. Well, it's like you know when I talk about satellite to people, it's like it's you know it yeah it's had issues, but it's in a it's in a a swim lane that is hard, so mm-hmm. it could be like the least shittiest product in in a in a difficult place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that's a very complicated system, right? is what it comes down to. So it's very easy for it to do something badly. But most of what it does, it does pretty well. Yeah, things like SAP, you know. SAP, if you've ever worked that out, is a nightmare. But that, again, is probably the the best in its class. Is the least shittiest ERP platform. Yeah. The least bad. The least bad. It's kind of like video conferencing software. All of them them kind of suck, but you find the one that sucks the least, and that's the the one you use. The one that's the least bad. Yeah. 
So, on to the next article. This is from Forbes. Google's internet balloons use AI. I wonder if it's AI hosted on AWS. You think Google would put AI on, on AWS? I hope not. Now, how are they using AI? I don't know. I feel like I feel it's, like that's in a very buzzword. I feel like if we would have read the article a little more closely, we could have answered that question. But oh, let me finish the headline, together. which is to deliver web voice video from 12 miles high. And the, the concept, at least that I understand from this article, is that Google has launched balloons that will help deliver internet access to places that traditionally were hard to deliver internet access to because they don't have infrastructure. Uh, yep, this, I don't know if this is the culmination. I don't know if this is the culmination of a project that I heard about years ago or if it's a different project, but I remember hearing about a similar thing. I don't know. It might've been 10 years ago. Somebody was launching balloons that were going to give internet yeah, access. I thought was, it was Facebook. This was one of, no, no, it was, it was Google's moonshot and it was project loon. Okay. Good. So, so yeah, they, they've been doing this for a while. So well, done. They've been Yay. Working on this for a while. Okay. Um, and of course, I mean, yes, it's got AI. And just remember, if it's Google, it's all behind the scenes being controlled by Borg. Right. So the Borg run everything. The Borg run everything, which means they're not putting their AI on AWS. Right. <laughs> no, no, not a chance. <laughs> Resistance, is, You're resistance right. is futile. Resistance is futile. Yeah. Borg, which is their container platform, right? Isn't that what Borg that's, is? But, well, Borg, the is, Borg is their orchestration platform. platform. But right. yeah, it's, it's, that's pretty much all of Google. Yeah. So the Borg runs the balloons, which give us internet access in places that's hard to get to. Which is cool. Like I, I, I really like the idea, right? I don't know if I love that it's Google that's doing it. Because, and even though I'm an Android user... Um, Google, of course, has its problems with privacy and with the fact that, you know, people are not customers, but they are revenue, right? So, uh, you know, that's that's problematic for me. So it may be a, a, a great thing, right, to give Internet access to places that don't have it or underprivileged countries or whatever, right? So that's that's cool. That's great. But uh, I am concerned about what they're doing with whatever data they might be trying to collect from it. I have to say that there's a lot of cases where Google come up, comes up with a service that is either free or very cheap, right? But the trade-off is that the data you transfer through it is considered theirs, and they're mining it for ad revenue and whatever. So that's... Yeah. I mean, like AWS. Yeah. <laughs> like Google AWS also. is doing now. Yeah. Google also tends to have the attention span of a six-year-old sometimes. Exactly. Where they'll deploy a technology, get bored with it, and then just abandon it. Right. So that that could be yeah, a problem. How's that? Uh, how's that new video game service of theirs? Still running. <laughs> yeah, but it's like they forgot about it already. I don't know. It keeps getting new games. Is it? Is it? Is it picking up now? Because I, I don't know if you heard about it. It was like. I don't know if you'd call it picking up. So the one thing I don't do a lot of is play <laughs> online games, right? Uh, so I don't know if there's like a whole bunch of, there's an influx of users or anything on the on the platform. Uh, but I can say that it's constantly getting new games, uh, new to the platform anyway, not necessarily new games, right? There's a couple of titles that I recognize, but most of them are not brand new. Uh, and there's a bunch of indie games, which is kind of cool. Right, because you can get exposure to to these lesser known games, which is you know kind of fun in itself. But uh, it is pretty neat, I have to say. It, it's it, and I love the the concept, which is really the main reason that I keep using it because I just love the concept that I have almost no hardware here that's making this thing work. 
right? It's literally streaming all of it from a server somewhere. I don't love that. I don't love that. I have to buy a game again that I already own. Yes. Stadia. That's, that's my sucks. that's my biggest complaint with it, right? My biggest complaint says is the that, guy who's bought Skyrim probably eight times. Yeah. Is is that? <laughs> but that's that's different. Is that the, the games are locked into the Stadia ecosystem, right? And if Google does turn off Stadia, the games when go away. When they turn off Stadia. Right, when they turn off Stadia, the games are going to go away, right? So uh, the way I've dealt with that is I simply, I claim the free games that they give, which they do well, they do frequently, uh, and I don't buy games. I don't buy games through Stadia. That's probably the smartest way to do it. Right, so the free games have been fun. They're all like titles you've never heard of, or titles that I've never heard of anyway. Uh, but they're fun little games to play and whatever. Uh, but I haven't, I spent... I think on games, I've probably spent under a hundred bucks on Stadia, and that was because when I first joined it, uh, they had the whole that relaunch of the Tomb Raider games. You know, ever since uh, well, Tomb Raider was the one that released. I think it was like 2012 or something. Um, ever since that one, all of the games that have gone in that, which I'm a big fan of Tomb Raider games, um, I purchased those, but they were all like ten bucks a piece, so it wasn't really a big deal. Right. So I, I bought those on Stadia, but otherwise everything I've done is, has been free. And that was mainly because I wanted to really try out the ecosystem. And I figured a Tomb Raider game would be a good one to do that on because I like the games anyway. So anyway, um, yeah, that's the, not the what we're talking I about. Heard, <laughs> yeah, the, the last I heard about Stadia was that they, they finally released some launch day features that um, weren't there. Oh, yeah. Launch day, so. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there's a, there's a number of disappointments with Stadia. Um like uh, using the controller, right? So the, the whole point was that you, you had this controller and that was really the only piece of hardware you needed. And really, you don't even need that, right? But that was the thing that made it feel like a game system. Uh, you could play on a browser, you could play on your phone, you could play through a Chromecast, and that was, that was it. All you really needed was the controller and a Stadia account or a subscription, a Stadia Pro subscription. Um, but the controller, while it's a really nice controller... It doesn't work wirelessly with anything except the Chromecast. You have to plug oh, it no. physically into your phone. You have to plug it physically into your laptop if you're going to play that way. So, like, that was a real big disappointment, in, in my opinion. And there were a number of other features that they just they didn't deliver on. I, don't, I think they because, still haven't. That's because nobody ever came out with a standard for wireless things like that. Yeah, I know. Exactly. It's a shame. Shame <laughs> no one did that. So, anyway, that's my that's that's why Internet Balloons are using AI to deliver web voice and video. It has nothing to do with Stadia, but it has a lot to do with Google. <laughs> yes, it does. It, it, it is cool. I mean, I, I've seen, like, I, they were talking about it years ago, and I guess I was reading some more that this is the first non-emergency use of Loon that they've they've had. But the, yeah. the balloons use AI. Basically, the AI is used to teach the balloons how to manage themselves. So they, they you know, increase the, the size of the balloon to go up and go down, where they can catch different different airflows and move the balloons around and stay in certain areas that's pretty cool so that makes me wonder if the if the uh flame boss device i use for my big green egg if they claim that it's artificially intelligent because it learns how to maintain the temperature of the grill because it's it seems like magic to me it's totally ai and it's stored on aws and amazon now has a whole bunch of information about your meat oh hey now read that however you'd like <laughs> so speaking of uh, data data uh, right mr data from from cnn business 
See, I, I did the thing where you did. Congratulations. Did. It's only been four years. You finally learned. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook, Google, and Twitter won't give Hong Kong authorities user data. For, for now. now. For now, right? I love how they add that for now. He says ominously. At the moment, we're going to take this very popular stance where we're not going to give right. user data away. Right. What, the, what, the, what the title doesn't say <laughs> is that they were giving that data. Yeah. And they're pausing giving that data at least facebook it doesn't say uh yes twitter was doing it as well it says it in the headline it's true and google uh yep google also everybody seems to be pausing giving data to the authorities in hong kong right um which means that they were right so so i mean to be honest right so so, so think about it right um, everything's fine, right? The government's doing what the government's supposed to do. It's not oppressing its people. It's not doing nasty things. Uh, companies like this probably have agreements where they have, you know, they will give that data over, right? Then the government does crazy things that they don't agree with and they stop doing it, right? So this this is like the kind of thing I would kind of expect, right? So yes, they yeah, were giving of. the data, now they're not because they don't agree with what the government is doing, right? Yeah, and they may well, do it is... again when the government goes back to a normal status quo, right? <laughs> right. So, but as I mean, normal part, as part it gets in Hong is, Kong, <laughs> right? So, so if you go before all of the protests and everything else, when China was trying to do whatever China was trying to do in Hong Kong, which is what many months ago now. Oh, it's um, like a year. Yes. Yeah. So, so prior to that, you know, the status quo. Uh, it was what the status quo was. It doesn't sound like it was any more horrible than what happens in the U.S. Right. But I think I think when the protesting started and everything else, the fact that you know, and, and I uh, this is speculation, but I, I I suspect that the law enforcement started using this, you know, started requesting more and more information, and it's well, only taken until now when they've passed this this apparently controversial security law um, for them to go, oh wait, maybe we should not give this data. And, yeah. I, and I think that's sort of the, at least for me, that's that's sort of the takeaway is like it took something like this for them to go, yeah, oh, I uh, mean, maybe we shouldn't do that. I got to think about what level of red tape they have to go through to get this kind of thing done. Right. There's the, there's the, like, you cannot run a business and I've do seen, business with people in Hong Kong. I've seen, at, I've seen even in small organizations, changes that seem simple or seem like common sense get drugged through a whole procedure of red tape before they can be done. Right. And as, and as a, as an organization gets more and more complex, that gets even longer. Right. As long as there's policy surrounding getting changes made. Right. So I could imagine that companies dealing with governments, right. It's not like a, a switch. They can just go like, Nope, we're not doing that anymore. Cause they got to cover a bunch of bases. Right now, I'm not trying to defend giving away private data on citizens to a to a corrupt government, right? Because that's that's obviously a bad thing. But I can also understand where why it couldn't have been just a switch, right? Maybe it could have been, you know, maybe Google and Facebook and Twitter could have been like, I don't like what you guys are doing. We're going to stop giving you data right now. But could there have been backlash of some, you know, some manner that would have gotten them into a lot of trouble? I don't know. You know, well, I, Google's I'm just done speculating. This before where they, right, Google's done this before where they backed out of China. 
So yeah. Well, I don't know. At any rate, they've stopped now, and they'll probably start doing it again in the future. Who knows when? We'll keep an eye on it. <laughs> and by keep an All eye right. on it, I mean if I get a Google alert in six months that says they've done it again, we'll tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll miss it, and uh, you know you won't hear about it on this show. <laughs> All right. Let's switch topics and talk about racks. Yes. Racks. So this is from uh, Blocks and Files. I don't know. Again, this is a Google alert that came up and it, it caught my interest because I really think that it sounds ironic. Amazon adds on-premises RDS database support to AWS Outposts. So if you're not familiar with AWS Outposts, this is putting AWS's cloud on-prem, which is exactly... Which is a complete friggin' contradiction. Which is exactly what AWS was meant to eliminate, was on-prem. <laughs> so now... Uh, not only can you run like instance and storage and whatnot on-prem in your AWS outpost, you can also run RDS databases on-prem in your AWS outpost. So, you know. <laughs> but look, just... you still can you still get charged an hourly fee for mm. uh, each managed database. Well, yeah, and then on top of that, the power and cooling and whatever to manage your AWS outposts. Friggin' set up OpenStack. Come on! Yes. yes, you can't you can't make too much fun of AWS for this because they they're just following suit to uh, to what uh, Microsoft does with Azure Stack, and what Oracle does with Cloud at Customer. Okay. Yeah. Or hey, did you know Oracle has a cloud? Right. I've heard. Or you could you could design your services in such a way that they don't depend on AWS to the point where you have to extend AWS into your freaking data center. Hmm. So there are if only there, were open, if only there well, were open systems and if software. Only, that if only there, there was a vendor that them. sold an open hybrid cloud solution. Fine. <laughs> I mean, if you're talking that way, fine. But I mean, if, if you're talking cloud versus on-prem, there are there are definitely valid reasons to have on-prem servers. No, yeah, a absolutely. A lot of it has to do with latency. And, yeah, and security no, no, and that's else. and that's what this. I'm I'm. I'm pretty sure that's what this is meant to solve, right? So you have a database, which is generally you need to have fast access to. You have something on-prem, whether it's, you know, like your end user or an application or whatever, and you need quick access to it. You want to bring it on-prem, right? And when you're locked into an ecosystem like Amazon, the only choice you have is to extend Amazon into your data center. That's the point I'm trying to make. If you I, hadn't made I... that choice to begin with, you wouldn't have to buy an application, extend it into your data center or on-prem or whatever in order to facilitate a thing that was dirt simple 10 years ago. So so what, what makes it better um, or funnier, I guess, is when you look <laughs> at this and realize that, that Outpost is like seven grand a month for the cheap version, right? But then on top of it, if you want something like RDS, you're now paying seven and a half cents a minute yeah. for RDS access on the seven thousand dollar rack a month or seven thousand dollars a month rack that you've purchased from Amazon. That you purchased from Amazon. Seven and a half and that cents you, an hour. It looks and like. that you stood up an hour. per hour, yeah, and that you stood up in your data center, which you're paying money to cool, and you're paying money to power, and you're paying money to secure. And by the way, that's a MySQL instance, which you could friggin' self-host. <laughs> Well, RDS is not just my, MySQL. RDS no. has uh, well, RDS this is, is the seventy-five, the seven and a half cents per hour for a MySQL. Oh, okay. Oh, right, CPUs right, right. Gig of memory. 
Right. Yeah, but uh, I understand the whole RDS is your managed yeah, but, database service, but you know. Yeah. Oh, it only supports uh, MySQL and PostgreSQL, which are two open Currently. source solutions that you They're can run on prem yes. anyway. Not on. <sighs> I, I just think it's funny that you're renting the hardware and then having to pay yes. for the software that you're renting on the, and, on the hardware. And, that you're to, renting. And, to, and to power it and cool it and to secure it. And I'm sure yeah, there's fools awesome. that are racing to hand that money to Amazon. Yeah, I think I know one of them, but um, I digress. Oh, I guess I would know him too. Yeah, huh? I think you know him too. <laughs> fool is a very nice term. I don't work uh, for him anymore. I can call him a fool. I can call him whatever family, I want, right? Being a family friend of this show, I'm not going to... Oh, you probably a, have much worse things for him than I do. <laughs> now, to be fair, one of my players works for Amazon, and I do, and he, he's also a fellow scout parent, so I do like that, you know, he can provide for his family. Yes, I do like that they employ him, and he seems like a very smart person. It seems he's like he's guy. doing very well, and he would, he would be a fool. I've been trying to get him to come to Red Hat, too. He'd but. be a fool to leave Amazon, considering the conversations that we've had with him. But yeah. I do hate the people he works for. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got I've got feelings about AWS, and I think I've made I, that clear on the show. <laughs> I, it seems like. <laughs> All right, so on to our last article for the for the night. Uh, this comes from TechCrunch. Docker partners with AWS to improve container workflows, and this is basically Docker trying to remain relevant uh, in a container world where everyone's moving to the cloud. And a lot of people, especially those that are using Red Hat's applications or Red Hat's platform are moving to Podman. Um, someday I'm going to have to find out what the, what the rub was between Red Hat and Docker as to why we went, why we went with Podman, but that's for another show. We should have Dan Walsh on. We should totally have McCarty. I mean, we've already had Chris Wright, so we may as well, I mean, we can go down from there. Right. And if someone says no, we're like, look, Chris Wright did it. I don't know if it's down there, but we, but yeah, I see what you mean. Down hierarchically, hierarchically. I can't say and that. Dan, word. Dan would be hilarious because the he'd be there. Be awesome with with his, with his Boston accent and everything, and he's just he's he's That'd a guy. Great. So anyway, uh, this is basically an article about how Docker and AWS are working together to make Docker Compose work better with AWS resources like Fargate and ECS. So. Uh, I guess previously Docker Compose was a, was not something that translated easily into ECS or um, Fargate, and they're working together to make that not so much what of a hurdle Fargate? anymore. Fargate is a hosted container service, which is ridiculously expensive, if you ask me. Basically, a, a container oh, costs about what an EC2 instance does. At least it Good did when Lord. I looked at it a long time ago. Yeah. So so well. Okay. So ECS ECS itself is. Uh, you pay for the EC2 instances, um, of which you have to have, yeah. I believe, at least two, maybe three, and it sets up Docker Swarm on it for you and yeah. manages it. Yeah. And then it launches the containers, which it then charges you for, yep. on the EC2 instances right. that you've been paying for. Um, all, all of this, again, this is the whole, like, you can do this yourself <laughs> in your basement. Yes. Um, and what there's Fargate also, does, there's EKS as well, which is a hosted Kubernetes, Kubernetes solution, right. which that's, is a similar model to what you just described, except no, it's Kubernetes instead of Swarm. It's well, there's 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 actually good differences there, and EKS isn't isn't horrible. Um, okay. And EKS EKS alone, Kubernetes is not for the faint of heart. Right. So EKS, okay. 
a child could manage a swarm cluster. It is stupid simple. Okay. Kubernetes, hardened engineers have issues with. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kubernetes as a managed service is something that is, is actually a, a good thing to offer. Fargate added, um, it changes that model somehow. I'm not 100% sure. I think I think what Fargate gives you is the fact that you don't have to, I don't think you have to spin up EC2 instances. Right, you spin it up containers. You, you spin up the containers and it gives you some extra... Um, networking capabilities and yeah, stuff it, to, to do takes, things that you would have expected to want to do on ECS to begin with. It takes the the veil. And when I, when I say the veil, I mean the point where you're dealing with a endpoint at AWS and not a service and it moves it up one level from what I remember when I looked at this. Yeah. Um, Fargate the is last... basically a container service where you say, here's my container, please run it for me. Yes. And the, but the last time I, the last time I looked and I, I don't know if they've changed this. The last time I looked, you couldn't attach a Fargate container to storage. Mm. Which, okay. you know, so it's great for microservices, stateless microservices. Right. Do you need anything that if you're dealing with anything that needs storage, and let's face it, it's most of the containers out there. Yeah. Um, you're, you're kind of screwed. But um, the, the, and then again, e EKS, the managed part of it is is the I don't know what they call them anymore. I don't think they're actually called master nodes anymore. Head nodes, maybe. Um, mm. but that that cluster of the control uh, plane. orchestration nodes, the, the actual control plane is managed by um, managed by AWS. And then the individual EC2 instances that you spin up are the uh, worker nodes that, that you run your load on. Right. <laughs> load. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, I've, I have not found a solution that runs containers on AWS to be cost effective. <laughs> is is what I what I've decided. Um, running my own systems to run containers uh, has always been cheaper. Now you well, don't because you don't get you don't get the cluster feature though, right? So if I were running a cluster, I guess that's a little different. But well, but 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 again, um, if you want cost efficient containers on AWS, you're talking about containers that are spun up, do their work, and spin down. Yeah, you no, and I run containers that are. Yeah, I run containers that are twenty four seven services. Yeah, yeah, that's not that's not cost effective on AWS, no matter what you do. Just yeah. spin up an EC two oh, yeah. instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's well, no, and even I don't think EC two is even cost effective for that. There's much cheaper ways to do it. Well, well there's cheaper cloud not, providers to do it on. <laughs> right. If you're talking about AWS, no, there's not a cheaper way to do it. It's right. Just run an EC two instance. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. There's cheaper cloud providers. Yeah. You're right. So. At any rate, that covers the news for tonight. And to be honest, we've been going on this for it's got to be at least two hours of recorded time at this point. Oh yeah, we've been it's live for we've been live for two hours and forty minutes. So <laughs> I think it's time yeah. to wrap up the show. So, folks, if you're listening audio and you want to catch us live, you can do so on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, unless life gets in the way. But you can do so via youtube.com slash Iron System in Podcast. I'm also tinkering with multi-streaming, maybe as soon as our next episode, where we can also stream to Twitch. I know some people don't like YouTube because it's Google. They don't like YouTube because of things they've done to, quote-unquote, yeah, hackers. Yeah, Twitch is now Amazon. Yes, Twitch is now Amazon, uh, but it's a it's an end to a means, correct? So um, I means may to an end? I may means to an end. Yes, that's that's the right word. Uh, so I may end up streaming there as well, and you know maybe other platforms that uh, that I can do via the platform I'm looking at, which of course is Restream because I don't know that anybody else does this thing. If anybody knows of a service that does it, I'd be happy to compare. 
So any, anyone who does multi-streaming, let me know and I can look into them. But I'm looking at Restream.io for now. Uh, at any rate, uh, for now it's on YouTube and I will let everybody know once we've expanded, if we expand. If you want to join our Slack workspace to have conversations with us and, uh, you know, sort of get some behind the scenes stuff or chat with us or whatever, you can do so via ironsystem.com forward slash Slack. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for Iron Sysadmin. On Twitter, we are at Iron Sysadmin. On Facebook, you just have to kind of search for it. So there's links for those in the show notes if you want to go to them directory or directly. It's getting hard to talk, folks. Subscribe to us wherever you can find podcasts. I did find out. I was looking into how we get listed on Spotify, and it turns out that either I did this already or... Libsyn did Yay. it for me. We're on Spotify, so you can find us on Spotify. Maybe you're already listening to us on Spotify. And every time I've said, I don't know if, if we're on Spotify, you you looked at your phone like, what? Of course you're on Spotify. I'm listening to you on Spotify. Um, anyway, we're on live Spotify. Live journal someday. Someday we'll be on live journal. And don't forget, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so via Patreon, patreon.com slash ironsysadmin. We are maybe a third of the way to buying that new mixer I keep talking about. So... Every month, it gets a little closer. And with that, I think we're done. I think I've covered everything we need to cover. I think I've had enough arguments with my children during the show tonight. <laughs> and I think I'm ready to call it a night. So, I think it was a pretty good show. What do you guys think? You guys being the, I, the co-hosts that I'm actually speaking to. I, I think we're both still going to have a job tomorrow. That's, so I consider that a success. That's a plus. That's a plus. We had a guest that could have gotten us fired, and we didn't, as far as I know, get fired. <laughs> Yay! Yay! And that wasn't even... That was, like, perfect, right? That was live. Yay! I mean, it was almost like you're the one that's in that clip. Almost. <laughs> Almost. All right, folks. I think we're going to call it a night. Thanks for listening or watching, and we will catch you next week. Yeah.